Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. I'm Luke. I'm Marianne. And this week we're taking a look at a new entry on the list. Brian Singer, Asterix's, um, Bohemian Rhapsody, the biopic of Freddie Mercury produced by Queen, which was a new entry on the list. Now, when I put together this panel of, like, four experts uh, on the subject of Queen... The movie was at 150. Do people want to take a guess where it is on the list right now? Keep in mind the tradition is you enter relatively high and then you drop. Where do we think the movie is at this moment in time? I feel like you're setting us up to say that it's gone down, it, it's but that, that means it's gone up. It's definitely gone up. People love this movie. I'm going to say 120. Close enough. 123 at the moment. The 123rd best movie of all time. Which I think makes the highest new entry this year. And and sorry, there's just silence on the podcast here. <laughs> That's it's, not it's true. A, it's a rare it's moment. Sounds of drinking tea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Extended slur. <laughs> Maybe if I lean in closer to the mic, you can feel me put my head into my hands. Is um, that coming through? But yes, so this is a new entry. Uh, one of the first new entries of since we did our anniversary special. So we thought we'd invite on uh, two people. We'd invite on Luke and we'd invite Marianne. Luke is here because, having talked to him, he has very strong feelings about the film, I believe. It's not very good. <laughs> um, hopefully, though, we will build on that later in the podcast. <laughs> we also invited Marianne on because, Marianne, you're a big Queen fan, as I understand Very it. strong feelings about Queen. I think your main concern um, from kind of talking to you before before seeing this is, is that because you liked Queen so much, this might kind of like not live up to... Um, your your love for the band, and I think that actually turned out to I was pleasantly surprised. Oh, yeah, this is interesting. I was pleasantly surprised. Um, but then I love Queen so much that it, you know, I, it did not feel like an unbiased look at a film <laughs> for me. So, well, this is interesting because like this is one of the movies, and it happens every once in a while that you get one of these movies that comes along and serves to like cleave apart critical consensus, and apparently audience opinion. So, for example, Venom is a movie that, you know, critics really loathe, but film audiences seem to latch on to, gave positive films for to. Twitter seemed very fond of it as well. well. I think a lot of critics like the the third kind of uh, part of it. The third part of Venom. Of Venom. I haven't seen Venom. This, no. is, this is just like what I, what I hear <laughs> what from. What I gathered. Like, <laughs> say, oh, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. So that you, it happens every once in a while that you get these movies, and it causes a little bit of an existential crisis. That whole are critics in touch with the general public? Is there a misunderstanding there, and what is the role of critics and sort of thing? Because this is a movie that has a fairly cold, or at best, lukewarm critical response. I think it has something like fifty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. But as we've discussed, audiences love it. A cinema score, the title song itself, entering the Billboard one hundred. For the third decade, which is remarkable and unprecedented. Um, in fact, fun fact, there are only two songs that have been number one in the UK charts without any remixing in two separate decades. And that doesn't count, obviously, passing over on New Year's Eve or whatever. One of them is Bohemian Rhapsody. Do you want to guess what the other song is? The other song in British chart history that is as popular, as powerful, and as iconic as Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, is it a Cliff Richard song? No. Is it Wonderwall? No. Is, is this... God um, save the Queen. No. Is it Do They Know It's Christmas? 
That doesn't count because they re-recorded it. They re-recorded it, yeah. Um, but no, it is actually Peter Andre's Mysterious Girl, which was number one in, oh. in the early 90s oh, oh. and in and the 2000s. And a when... banger. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Mysterious Girl. Do you want to get close to it? Uh, but yes, yeah, so uh, Bohemian Rhapsody though is a monster. It's done phenomenally well at the well, box office. We won't be talking about that this week. We're going to be talking about Peter Andre's <laughs> mysterious girl. girl. Well, that's the thing. This is the Peter Andre biopic, Desert Island. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about this before we talk about the film because this is a film that I think garnered a lot of hostility from like critics and from observers and from people who write about film, but which audiences seem to have latched onto. And I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm hostile to the film for certain reasons, but I, I wouldn't be hostile to people enjoying it because it doesn't surprise me at all. Like as a film, it it's not like it's not entertaining, and I'm as not- a biopic, it's not like even if you look at something like Ray, yeah, you know, which or is, walk the line even that's what uh, yeah, those are people in kind of niche genres or they're of a they're from a certain point in America and stuff like that. Queen are one of the like biggest band of all time. They, they sell millions and they always have. It's not really a surprise to me that people would turn up in, in their droves to see it and really like it. And when I came out of seeing it the first time and I was texting friends and I was like, I, di- I didn't like it. They were like, oh, everyone I know has said that it's really entertaining. It's, but it's, it's just my position on it is that Queen, the band are entertaining. I'm not disputing that. I listened to them the whole way home. It was great. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was cooking this morning listening to the greatest hits of Queen. And it happened the last time I watched it as well. You, you, you can't... It's... it's. I mean, it's difficult in in ways to separate it because whatever problems I uh, like one could have about the movie, there's an awful lot of Queen in it. So, <laughs> like, if you really like Queen, you're going to... You're going to enjoy it, like, thoroughly on that level. Because, I mean, like, confirmed. They, they, <laughs> like, especially like watching it in a cinema, where like, it's a sort of an where, experience. Yeah, where the, it's no, it's just like the sound. Yeah, um, of it is is is, is the, incredible. Like I went with somebody the first time I saw it, and they were singing along. And this is remarkable because I went to screenings of Mamma Mia and A Star Is Born, and people there weren't singing along. But with Bohemian Rhapsody. Like people in the audience, not loudly, not like obtrusively, but you look around and you see the lips moving in time to the music, which is remarkable. Yeah, the second time that I saw it, the person there was a person sitting in the row in front of me, like head banging and drumming along with everything. You know, you can't really take that away from people. Yeah, Andrew had the misfortune of sitting beside someone who may have lip synced <laughs> the whole movie. <laughs> Only lip synced. Maybe a little bit of like breathy (laughs) but I mean this is like part of like why Queen is one of the greatest bands of all time is that they've always had this participatory edge to their music you know and I mean I mean it's in the trailer so it's not really a spoiler they have a discussion of one of the songs where they want to give the audience a song that they can sing themselves sure this is the one where like certain elements of the music press describe Queen as fascistic uh, or fascist um because they're a band that encourages participation in the music freddie mercury having his fist outstretched the audience who echo back his sentiment to are, them are critics really saying that they they did back in the 80s this, was, in the not 80s. All. this was one of the big lines of, okay, <laughs> do you say hashtag, hashtag not, all. not all critics <laughs> yeah but like this is one of the things like and it, they do it in the film as well where they discuss the music press's reaction because there's always a 
a snootiness about Queen the band as well in the music press. Where you look well, at the... that, was, that was back in the eighties. People were such snowflakes back then. <laughs> <laughs> they were so sensitive. Um, well, it was yeah. back in the in the sixties and uh, sorry, in the seventies and stuff like that, where they're being described as like a a cut price Led Zeppelin. Uh, my favorite description of like seventies Queen is horny Tolkien, uh, which seems to capture the band's sort of early seventies appeal very very well. I think. Uh, Queen were more inspired by their influences as opposed to like plagiarizing them, which I think sets them apart from Led Zeppelin. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> take that, Robert Plant. But um, yeah, so th- there's always been a sort of an air. Tolkien was just plagiarizing all of the <laughs> like mythology. Yeah, <laughs> so it, it's all just a big circle. of years. But th- this is the thing: like Queen have always been, and I think Marianne hits on it there. Queen have always been a very populist band. In that they are a band that people who wouldn't be big musical heads would know relatively well. Like, I'm not a big fan of music. I don't know a lot of popular music, rock music, etc. But I would know a good 10, 12 Queen standards. Um, I mean, one of the, the ringer, I think, argued that the genius of Freddie Mercury was that he created songs that were at once became karaoke standards but were also impossible to perform at karaoke um, at the same time, which is that wonderful push and pull between them. But uh, it's the great thing about them, where, like, if you do, like... um, Like, I've had several times kind of singing um, Bohemian Rhapsody on, like, um, bus (laughs) journeys. (laughs) (laughs) Or or one time, like, a, a, a tram in Germany with, like, extended family. And, um... People do appreciate it's like oh that was that was that was, that was a, a, a strong choice that was a challenging. <laughs> um, Most of the time when people yeah, sing on yeah. public transport, they just do like Cliff Richard. Yeah, but you you put yourself out there. But that's like the I mean the magic of Bohemian Rhapsody because I saw a clip on the internet and now of course can't remember where it was from or what the context <laughs> what it was. But it's Show notes. it's a huge. Uh, crowd of people and it's like filmed from the stage and they're waiting for a concert like not a queen concert yeah. just like green day or something they're all like it's like about 20,000 people and bohemian rhapsody starts up and the whole crowd is doing it like and it's as we know a complicated song <laughs> with a lot of words that don't make sense to most people and like what are you Mark my words but like what are you uniting thing I mean also like humans are just amazing that they're just like <laughs> we're all gonna do this together now as kind of a ritual but it's become that song you know that everyone can do all the bits you know and I feel like we may be a little harsh on the film when we get into the spoiler zone I suspect that this I will be (laughs) (laughs) but but, Luke laying his cars out there I think like you're you're glad that people like it I really am yeah yeah and there there are bits in Bohemian Rhapsody the film where it's looking to explore or at least kind of engage with people's engagement with Queen and what makes Queen that band that people react to in that way i think when it's doing that it's all right i think when it's trying to be a biopic it's a different mercury yeah Um, this is the thing like i think there's an argument to be made that like this is the thing where queen create these big populist songs that you can clap and sing along to even though they look difficult and the thing about bohemian rhapsody maybe to me to me (laughs) to me um is that the film creates a narrative of Queen that the audience can follow along with, even if it has, in many places, no relation to reality. Like, the thing about Bohemian Rhapsody is that it's a film that you probably, like, get more out of and understand more deeply 
if you've watched a bunch of musical biopics than if you know anything about the backstory that, of Queen. And that, I think that's interesting. That struck me as quite strange because um, people... Like, like I, I, um, I know, like, Darren, you've talked about your um, relationship to Queen and about, like, music in general being, yes. being being a creature from another planet. I mean, you're aware of it. I am aware of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love uh, this song. <laughs> oh, this isn't a song? Oh, that's the music people... is off? <laughs> that's just people talking. <laughs> instruments? Animals? Love that. <laughs> Small furry animals in a cave with a pig. Anyway. Uh, um, I, but, but, like, for so many people, Queen was, um, like... Very kind of uh, important, I think, for myself, for Marianne. Um, I think we'll, we'll probably like. Uh, I'd imagine we'll we'll, we'll talk a bit like for a baby about, driver but, and baby driver. Yeah, but but the the um the thing about making a movie where like a lot of it doesn't kind of um, seem really. kind of like true to um so people people have a familiarity with with what um actually happened. Do they? Yeah, I think I think I they think do. They do. Like I, think. I, 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 I think thing, thing, things about it kind of like didn't seem very kind of um, truthful. And apparently, some of the I've heard anyway that that there's a lot of um, uh, stuff online about like this isn't how it happened. Oh at yeah, all. we're, we're yeah, going to talk yeah. about that in a great deal. Depth. And it, it also feels like obviously incredibly compressed. Yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. like Queen's career was so long. Yeah. as a band and I think like because I meant to go back and find the BBC documentary yes that, which everybody's like, recommended uh, but also I'm not sure if it's the same one we had a Queen documentary on a VHS when I was a child in my house and I watched it obsessively uh, so like was really like, and I'm not sure if it's that BBC documentary, but anyway, I looked it up and I was like, this is three hours long I do not have time to watch this but it is like the story is so long that yeah. if you have any familiarity with kind of Queen's trajectory, you're like, there are huge chunks of this that's, missing, yeah. or, <laughs> which or is fudged or wiped out. Which, or but that's, I mean, that's the nature of like making a feature film of it. Oh, you yeah. know, yeah. well, this is yeah. the thing because I mean, like we we talked about this in the podcast before. When we talked about like Hotel Rwanda and the, necess- and the necessity, like the act of adaptation, whether you're adapting from a book from another film, from a TV series, from, from real, real life, life yeah. uh, is an act of like compression, an act of moving. And the important thing is not necessarily factual accuracy, but truth. No. But what's remarkable, and like truth in an abstract sense, as long as you capture the essence of what you're portraying. One of the interesting things about this for me, and I'm kind of curious because I, I wonder how many people here have seen Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story? Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want ruined musical biopics forever. I have not seen it. Yeah, but, but yeah, it, I, I I agree with Luke. It's so difficult to to do a movie like this, kind of like sin- seriously, sincerely. Yeah, well, that, or, to, the, or to take to because there are moments seriously. in this that come directly from the Dewey Cox story, right down to sorry, son. Freddie Mercury likes to remember his entire life before he plays a rock concert. But, and the problem with that is, like when you're, for example, when you're compressing a band's entire history, you might lose certain elements or simplify that story. And that's that, that's one thing. But when you're shaping a person's life into the shape of a movie narrative, there are things that you can do unintentionally. And there it's absolutely done unintentionally with Freddie Mercury. That can be quite troubling. Yes. Or, you know. Yeah. Um, and in, in Walk Hard, there's all that, you know, 
drugs. You don't want any part of this. You don't want cocaine. It makes you feel invincible. (laughs) And in this movie, it's like, what are you doing in there? I'm being gay. You don't want any part of this, Freddy. You know, I I have issues with the way it depicts Freddy and his his kind of life. But this is the thing is that like, because we we did a little round table there of who's seen Dewey Cox walk hard. And like, that's the thing is that a lot of film critics have. We've, and, we've cut it out. <laughs> for like, but just like, in case the listeners are wondering. Yeah. But we had a round table. We did have a round table. But the thing is that, because um, a lot of film critics and a lot of like obsessive film fans will have seen it because it's very highly regarded among film fans because it satirizes the musical biopic. It's a film that relies on your understanding of like genre conventions of a movie in order to work and picks apart that genre. But the average person who went to see, who goes to see films, the people who have seen Bohemian Rhapsody have never seen a movie like Walk Hard. They've never seen like the idea of the biopic being picked apart or blown apart. And so it's a lot easier, I think, to take seriously. Or it's a lot easier for critics to dismiss that the effectiveness of this template because they've seen it picked apart so often, if that makes sense. Like, I think the general audiences are maybe more accepting of the structures that this film imposes on the life of Freddie Mercury than film critics who have seen it done time and again and even seen it picked apart and blown apart. And I think as well it's possible to kind of go to a movie like this even being aware of those things and and uh, and see, oh yeah, this this uh, par- parts of this are very hackneyed, but, but like still be able to enjoy it and still uh, be, able, be able to say like, that's okay. Like, like yeah. the, the, this... This doesn't have to be uh, subtle, or um, this doesn't have to in- invert or, yeah. some sort of uh, trope Tropes. that I'm familiar with. Yeah, and the question is though, when those tropes brush up against reality? Like, I mean, yeah, you know, I've yeah. been, I, I am occasionally very snooty when I talk about films, and I apologize for that. But my my one liner on Bohemian Rhapsody amounted to: this is a film that refuses to let the facts get in the way of a much less interesting story, uh, because the, again, the rhythms of this are not the rhythms of the Queen story per se. I think they're the rhythms of a standard musical biopic. You could do this with Iron Maiden, for example, and you have a member leaving, you have him coming back, you have a triumphant return concert. You could do it with that. You could probably do it with Led Zeppelin. You could apply the template as seen here to any number of like bands, and it doesn't matter how true or how you know accurate it is. It would feel earned to the audience watching it because it works as a story as a narrative, as a series of beats assembled in a way to generate an emotional response. Arguably, like music is. Darren says, as somebody who knows nothing about music. <laughs> this is a test, Darren. This is designed to provoke an emotional response. Uh, a tur- you come across a turtle. It's on its back. Um, <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because for me, the most fascinating part of the Queen story has always been the four members, not like Freddie Mercury... On his own. On his own. And those were the least interesting parts of the film. To me, the most interesting parts were all the band interactions. Because I thought they had, like, four absolutely great performances there. And also, I mean, one of the most unusual things about Queen of the Band is, like, every single one of them could write hit singles. You know, that was... And that was, like, one of the things that made them so incredible. And they do touch on that. There were no Ringo's. Hey, hey, I like Ringo. They do touch on that a bit in the film, but it's more like they talk about, like, it's kind of like, we need each other. And they say that a lot, but they don't do much actually showing us that. Um, You need us, Freddie, more than you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need anyone. um, I don't, sorry, there's going to be awful British accents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spinal tap. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, it, there was a, too much of uh, kind of chatting about it. And it was just like, just show us that, like, show us that chemistry, you know? I, I think you, you do wonder, because so much of the behind-the-scenes talk about this film concerns the, the directing of it, but yeah. it is worth mentioning as well that this was a film produced... By Queen. By Queen. Um, which uh, is inseparable from the controversy going and, in some ways. And I, I know I've read about how, like, Brian May and, and the other members, they were very keen to get that we did all right songs and it was a collaborative process stuff in there. But I don't know how much of... Not insecure, you know. It, I there is that kind of we. F- they feel that need to make it more of a Freddy story than maybe it needs to be, and they have been shopping this around for years. To yeah, be, this project Freddy began Mercury. in two thousand and ten. The original kind of like conception of it was that the Freddie Mercury part wasn't that important. Well, this is that the famous. Was, so that's Sasha that's, Baron Cohen. It's, it's he's the one that's not there now, and he's the one that had the in movie narrative terms tragic ending and blah 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 so he provides the arc yeah well this doesn't necessarily well this is this is the well do you want do you want to talk a little bit about the production history now or we do it in the spoiler zone i think we may just talk about it generally and then just sort of talk specifically about no yeah we 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 i suppose yeah we can talk about it in the or it doesn't really spoil to talk about about the the movie that it wasn't (laughs) yeah i suppose that's Um, that's fair like it depends what we're saying yeah but the the movie sort of began its life or its path to screen around about 2010 with sasha baron cohen as the driving force he originally wanted uh is it peter morgan to write the script who gets a story credit um on the version of the film that was released peter morgan's famously the guy who wrote the queen for example frost nixon He's, he's one of the modern, like, if you want a biopic written in the modern style, you go to Peter Morgan. And what he does is he tends to fixate on particular events and use those events to illuminate, like, a character's life. And I suspect that's where the Live Aid framework came from. Now, around about 2013, Cohen ran into a bit of bother. Um, and the bother depends on who you're talking to and, and what they're saying. According to Stephen Frears, the issue was that Cohen wanted to make it, and his word is, outrageously homosexual. And that made Queen uncomfortable because they wanted a PG-13 film. Roger um, Roger Taylor from Queen, his argument is that Cohen wanted to make the movie a mockery of Freddie Mercury, although that's coming from the band's perspective. And Sasha Baron Cohen, which I think Andrew's talked about in the podcast before, went on the Howard Stern show and argued that basically the, the argument that pushed him out of the film was he was talking to Queen about his conception of the film. And he was like, so I see it going from when Freddie Mercury joins you to when Fred, you know, to when Freddie dies. And Queen's like, no, we, we see that be coming in the middle of the film. And, and he's like, what, you mean you're going to tell it non-linearly? And he's like, no, you, you do realize we still record and perform, right? Um, and that was apparently sort of the breaking point for Cohen. And there's been a bit of back and forth around that as well. But yeah, it is significant, um, as Marianne said, that it, that it is very much for our members. So I, I remember in... Um, uh, at the start of secondary school, we had um, like these Irish classes where like you go through the different chapters to learn the different vocabulary and a, a express yourself. And it's like, what was it? Codeam band kyol is farlat. And like queen say on band is farlom. And it's like... And then it was like, it, it asked like, uh, which is like, what is your favorite band? Queen is my favorite band. But then it would be like, who is your favorite guitarist? <laughs> so, You've got an easy answer. Brian there. May <laughs> <laughs> is, is Adam. The, uh, <laughs> 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 I 
Listeners are getting an Irish language class this edition of the podcast. Um, Adam <laughs> this is sponsored by Duolingo. Yeah. Um, Let him know. Yeah. It's worth noting, by the way, that producer Graham King has argued that Cohen was never actually cast in the film. He just sort of did that Quentin Tarantino thing of announcing to the press and doing interviews that he was associated with the film to get himself involved. Uh, but apparently, interesting enough, like Dexter Fletcher, whose name will come up again when we talk about the film's production, was drafted in to direct the film around about 2014. He cast Ben Wishaw in the leading role of Freddie Mercury. And he was fired when it was made clear that he could not make an R-rated movie. He wanted to make a very out there, very sort of provocative film. And Queen said no. Ben Wishaw is in trailers for something at the moment, isn't he? Who Who is Ben Wishaw for, ben for, Wish- for oh. characters who don't read? Paddington Bear. He's uh, going to be in Mary Poppins, isn't he? That's he the one. Okay. Mary Poppins. Yeah, yeah. That's the one. He's also Paddington Bear, and he's also Q Inspector in Skyfall. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ah, um, yes. And he was in Cloud Atlas, which I will never stop recommending. He's very good. I don't see him as Freddie Mercury at all. No, it's very hard to see. Although Remy Malik, on the other hand, I mean, we'll talk a bit about Although Remy that would be, uh, you know... Um, I get, a gay actor playing a, a Yes, a that's the thing, person, is that... Yeah. I, get, I guess we'll... Um, Will we will we talk about kind of like yeah we'll ask we the, the three yeah. questions and then we'll sort of jump into the spore zone. So the three they're actually <laughs> like the same this, questions. They're, they're basically the same. Although questions. sometimes you have some diversity. Okay, so the first one is: Do you think that this movie belongs on the list of the top two hundred and fifty movies ever made, Luke? Uh, no. I really don't. Um, like it is an entertaining film in its own way, and like I say, if there. Uh, if there, because there are so many people that really enjoy it, that that's its value. Do you know what I mean? But I don't even see it as one of the outstanding biopics of all time. And they're <laughs> or not of this year. They're not a genre I gravitate towards generally. Um, I think it will hang on on that list because yeah, because of the popularity of the band and the fact that people are really enjoying the film. I don't see it falling off that list. No, it, it's still climbing. Like it's yeah, again, exactly. it's, it's been in over a week and it's climbing, which is very, very rare. And it's great that a movie comes out and people latch onto it. And love and it. Like Enjoy. word of mouth, you know, you see that, you know, it going up the list is evidence of that. Yeah, well, I mean, this is one of the things where it was presumed to be dead on arrival because of things that we're going to talk about when we get into the spoiler zone, where a lot of people were eager to write this off. A lot of it, critics. Were yes, eager that's to, fair. That's very fair. And like a critic's conception of what counts as dead on arrival. <laughs> Sometimes includes comes from, venom, but sometimes that comes from the take on that that they've written in their head six months earlier when they've seen the teaser. Yeah, audiences don't care about that kind of thing. Yeah, and sometimes, and this is maybe more valid, that comes from their reaction to the behind the scenes stuff. And again, audiences don't care about that. May not even be aware of that. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, whatever about the legitimacy of it, audiences don't know who Brian Singer is. Yeah. <laughs> so, or Dexter Fletcher, yeah. or anything like that, and it. May you know to, that this is case specific, but it maybe shouldn't matter to them. Well, we'll probably talk about that in a bit more depth later maybe on. It, it should here though. Um, and Marianne, what about yourself? Do you think this belongs on the list of the top two hundred and fifty movies ever made? No, I don't. I mean, I massively enjoyed myself, but I don't think I would have gotten so much out of the movie if I didn't already have such an emotional investment in this band and their story. And even from that perspective, like, this is not the best telling of the Freddie Mercury story that I've ever seen by a long shot. So, in that sense, it's kind of, uh, 
kind of failed in its mission for me. <laughs> what about yourself, Andrew? Yeah, um, I no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it on the on on the top two fifty. I I I would I would agree with Marianne uh, that the kind of power of uh, Queen songs just kind of like um, pull me in and uh, like that 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 I enjoyed it a great deal because of that. And and I think like parts of the telling of the story were. Um, were surprisingly touching in their own way because I, I I thought kind of like in the first part of the movie that it wasn't really getting me, and um, I think in 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 the final parts of the movie, it actually delivered a little bit more um, for me in 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 terms of kind of me being able to emotionally invest in it. So it it um, but no, it doesn't it 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 it, it wouldn't belong in the top two fifty, but it, it like. Um, it, it, Again, it, it is enjoyable yeah. yeah and this is the thing and then this is the second question which is often the same as the first but maybe get some slight divergence here would it rank on your own list of like the best 250 movies that you have ever seen personally like your own 250 favorite films luke uh no but it does have a lot of songs that i would put in my <laughs> top 250 <laughs> list of songs of all time so that was that was good. Well, that, that's the argument. I think The Ringer made an excellent argument that like Bohemian Rhapsody is a pretty good best of album. But like, even... it's not the worst way to digest Queen songs. It's, it's not it's, even a no. very good best of album, to be honest. <laughs> I was like, there were a lot of songs where I was like, where is it? <laughs> I mean, for for I I think that's the way that I digested Queen is true. Best the greatest of albums, hits, yeah, greatest volume hits one, one and two. volume two. So just forget about volume three. That, 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 that's Queen's hubris. <laughs> that is like people want to. Volume wanna... three is beautiful. You're so wrong. It's <laughs> volume three. Have like the show must go on and stuff. It's the late yeah, Mercury and it stuff. has Days of Our Lives and I think uh, Princes of the Universe. What Prince of the Universe on three? Interesting. I think so. Yeah. I think a, a lot of it though. Does it also have is... Living on My Own from Mercury's Own? Yes. Yes. Oh no, that might be volume two. Okay. I should have looked this up. But, isn't, isn't a so lot much. of volume three like post mercury um i thought it was there's, a, there's a bit but then it's like a lot of his like last recordings oh jesus yeah sorry <laughs> yeah no no I, I i i i appreciate those but it is kind of the stuff where where it's it's kind of um uh, f- where it feels like Pavarotti and Friends kind of uh, sure it's of, not classic Queen thing. yeah I think yeah. it has Barcelona on it uh, I like Barcelona I like Barcelona a lot <laughs> as well yeah <laughs> Sorry. I, I like that I hate like, Barcelona <laughs> because of in um, it was I think in I like that even when we're ragging on Greatest Hits 3 we're like does it have that song I love that song that song's great <laughs> this music does it belong on the top 250 list of Queen songs <laughs> <laughs> that's fair that's, now a, that's very... a podcast I can very vocally <laughs> but, contribute but Marianne to. what about yourself as somebody who enjoyed the experience very much apparently would this be on like your top 250 film going experiences I don't think so because again I would just think of it in terms of like next time I'm like I want to cry over Freddie Mercury again I'm probably going to go back to like that documentary from my childhood rather than this film and Andrew yeah no it 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 wouldn't be on my top 250 but I I think as a musical biopic um in terms of the story of the life it's not uh probably great but in terms of being a showcase for the movie, I think it's better than probably Walk the Line. I think I think Ray is is um, is is quite good 
as showcasing uh, Ray Charles's music. I think the the performance of the music in the um, is 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 quite. Um, Created by layering Remy Malek's voice with a Freddie Mercury impersonator with Freddie himself. Oh. Which is an interesting way of approaching it. It seems to work well. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, for me, anyway. Yeah. Finally, if listeners somehow, despite the fact that this is on path to becoming the highest grossing musical bio biography of all time, haven't seen the movie yet, should they pause the podcast? There are totally people who haven't seen the movie. I know, I know. <laughs> but the odds of them if listening a, to... If you're some sort of... Like troglodyte. Hey, okay, okay. <laughs> I was more just considering like the people listening to a podcast labeled Bohemian Rhapsody about thirty minutes in, going, "Well, they've sold me on the movie now." Uh, but would you recommend that they pause the podcast, run out, watch the movie, and come back and join us on the other side of the spoiler zone for a discussion, Luke? Uh, well, I really didn't like it, but if you are a Queen fan, then I say yes. Then right, watch Walk it. Hard <laughs> and see how you. Yes, feel. you should watch Walk Hard. Um, yeah, I'd say. Even if you aren't a Queen fan, I mean, it's very entertaining, you know, as and I also think like you guys have touched on this a lot already. But, you know, if you're not uh, very familiar with the biopic as a genre, you're not going to be put off by some of the more hackneyed beats. Uh, so. Yeah, and then they're there because they work like like they're, the yeah. reason that it, the reason that it follows that template is because that template's reliable. People like formulas. Formulas sell. <laughs> As I feel like I am that audience member. Like, I'm just so suggestible and, like, willing to get upset about things, especially if it's a subject matter that I already care about. So I'm just like, I mean, Andrew can testify to this, but I, like, got teary several times. <laughs> just, But, like, I was so ready for it. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be so upset. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like an emotional binge and purge. Yeah. I, 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 I also cried. The, the, the big, you? the big, yeah. Oh, the, um, you just couldn't hear it over the sound of your own crying. I like, I like that Marianne was solely invested in her own emotional journey. <laughs> the big spoiler will be in, in in the spoiler zone where we find out if 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 Darren cried. Don't reveal it yet. Okay, all right, um, all right. Cried at the dialogue, <laughs> not in the way that everybody else did. All right, with that in mind, then we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. I'd like to talk about the film in more depth. Spoiler zone, spoiler zone, let us hear some fan theories. Production difficulties, everything's a dick to me. Spoiler zone, spoiler zone, spoiler zone, spoiler zone, spoiler zone. So. That was very good. That was not how I imagined it in my head. So, Marianne, uh, what is Bohemian Rhapsody about for you? Uh, it's about Queen. Um, no, sorry. <laughs> thank, thank you, I'm Mary. being glib because I was looking things up on my phone. Um, I think, for me, it is a not particularly successful biopic of Freddie Mercury, but 
a uh, in some ways uh, quite successful exploration of Queen the band and I wish that they'd done more of that basically rather than focusing quite so much on Freddy's turmoils and uh, various other things so yeah I think that was like kind of my uh, my main takeaway having had some time to calm down and be less emotional about it is that I like the bits of the film that I really enjoyed were them all recording together that seeing the, the creative, methodology the creative process and like I have to say I mean, I was um, so impressed by all four casting per- choices, all four and all four performances. Like even um, Freddie Mercury, like which I mean, Remy Malik, yeah, yeah Remy Malik, like such a a difficult. But even when you consider the size play. of the man compared to Mercury, even physically, sure. No, I mean, I and I, I not, I don't think his performance was perfect by any means but I don't think I don't know how you would play Freddie Mercury like I don't even know where you would begin but the other three like I mean and I think all relatively unknown actors or well with one notable exception perhaps. who's the notable exception because I didn't recognize how notable Darren uh, one of them was Tom Cruise <laughs> <laughs> in a lot of makeup I never well, heard of Deke, him Deke. who is he uh, did, you, did you recognize him at all no because he was such a good John Deacon <gasps> I know who it is because I is just it? looked it up. <laughs> Thank you. It? Tell us who it is. It's Tim from Jurassic Park. Yeah, it's the Joseph Mazzello. Oh my um, god! It's the kid from Jurassic Park, all grown up. That's amazing. And um, it's actually remarkable because like, I, I, you know, I only twigged it late the first time I watched it, and then was watching the movie the second time around, going, "It really is him." Because it's like early in the movie, he's got the wig on, and he has that thing, sort of like, and it's weird, right? Because he's he's still a relatively young actor, right? But he has, when he's got the long hair on at the start where he's deacons and they're a college band and they're performing, it really seems like he's a 40-year-old man wearing a bad wig. But then later on, when he's got the short hair, he looks like he's... They don't have... Deacons isn't in it when they're like a... Well, he's recruited as a bassist. When he joins, he's the bassist. He joins after Mercury. Okay. It's always Deacon. It's always yeah. John Deacon. No, well, in the movie it is. There was. They're not a base. Oh yeah, sorry, there was. But yes, in the movie. But in the movie, it's, it's yeah. always Deacon. But uh, he. Deaky. You guys love giving him nicknames. He's <laughs> not Deaky. The Deaky. Deaky. Um, <laughs> but I. He, everything's a Deaky. <laughs> everything's a Deaky to me. His um, performance was fun. like his physicality. Like absolute, like again, having watched this documentary so many times, his like his physicality was just bang on. Like that is, and like there, you've, were, you have history with the. So. <laughs> Everyone loves the um, <laughs> No, um, so Jesus, <laughs> um, no, I he was your first base. He was my first bassist. Um, Wait, what? So I have dated a disproportionate number of bassists throughout my life like not like every not every boyfriend has been a bassist but like more than an average number you know but I suddenly realized like watching the movie I was like yeah because I was obsessed with John Deacon like as a child like this is where it all started um yeah but and like he is the like quintessential like quiet bassist as well Deacon's is probably the queen member I have the greatest amount of sympathy for because he's he's the one who like Taylor and May are still out performing and touring and apparently 
Deacon's has reached the age where he's just like Darn, it's Deacon. Yeah. Deacon. <laughs> Deacon has, has reached the point where he's just like screw that. I'm going to stay home and manage the accounts. But he was like, like that even as a as a member of the band. He used to do <laughs> like leave them notes. Just been like I'm, I'm on gone, holiday. Yeah, I've gone to Tunisia family. for two weeks, yeah. and he would. <laughs> yeah. uh, if, if I read the credits correctly, it like May and Taylor are yes. the producers. Yeah, and he's yeah. Not. And he's he's very consciously t- taking a step back from the band. Now, all the financial decisions are made by the three of them. But Deacon apparently oversees a lot of the financial aspects and the management of the brand. Whereas Taylor and May do the touring and the performance and the chat shows and stuff like that. And are the public face of Queen. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of speculation about why that is. Apparently Deacon was very close to Mercury mm-hmm. uh, in real life, apparently. As opposed to May and Taylor. who were Even though distance. in this movie, Mercury is the cruelest to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Everyone's cruel to him. Well, I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to be snippy, but notice how we're having fun talking about Queen the band and, and not about... Like, no, <laughs> I, but, but absolutely. But like, like I said, like the... the one of the most enjoyable aspects of it for me was the verisimilitude. They also yeah. very natural. You know, yeah, and like yeah. there were certain points, especially where I forgot I wasn't looking at young Brian May. Like Taylor, we could, yeah, it's fine. But um, <laughs> yeah, like, like, like at the at the end of the movie when they show the footage of the live actual, actual like Queen playing, you realize how uh, much the actors look like. In fact, like well, Malik is arguably the one who looks least like his because yeah. uh, he's, he's yeah. physically smaller. But John Deacon always looked like a forty-year-old man in a wig. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <it> just, <laughs> that was his look. Um, right. The the this which, which looks uh, better, Roger, the actor playing Roger Taylor in drag, or, or Roger Taylor in drag? Roger Taylor in drag. <laughs> yeah. Um, Again, um, no, apparently Roger Taylor and drag was uh, like a huge like because obviously that a video, moment for people. But it was like, obviously that video was like hugely scandalous. But I mean, which is crazy. It's all your idea, Roger. You wrote the bloody song. It was your song, and I'm getting in trouble. By the way, we managed to appropriate Remy Malik's teeth. For this podcast. Uh, Remy Malik, Malik, Malik just came here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but actually, interesting enough, you know that Remy Malik I wore those teeth for about a year. <laughs> I, was, I was born in Zatsapa. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> you only adopted it. Um, but yeah, there's... <laughs> sorry. But the, he actually wore the teeth for about a year beforehand to allow him to articulate clearly within the prosthetic teeth. He's apparently had them gilded and placed like on a shelf oh, in his home. Oh, that's really creepy. Uh, okay. But this is very much, this is his Oscar narrative. Like the, what that story says to Oscar voters is, wouldn't you like to give me an Oscar statue I to put next to it? It's like Lady Gaga's, like I was eight year old practicing my Oscar acceptance speech. It's like, come on, I already have shelf space for this. Good luck, Rami. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's good in the movie, but I don't see that. Yeah. Do, we, do we see him getting a nomination? No, no. Uh, I don't know. Like, I'd see him getting a nomination. Maybe a nomination. Yeah, it feels like I this know. is sort of like a there big has, They have to give one nomination to somebody who who, did, who played someone in a biopic. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. and he sweated <laughs> an awful lot. It's either him or Gosling. I know um, that they've submitted singer for your consideration to really? Oscar voters, and it, yeah, they've submitted singer and not Fletcher uh, well, for best director. Singer obviously has the credit on it. He was stripped of producer credit, but he got to keep the director credit. Uh, um, do we want to talk about Singer now, or do we want to leave that until later? We can keep that brief, I think. 
I like that the entire room goes, goes silent. Yeah. So, Brian Singer, um, who is caught up in the midst of his own sexual assault allegations. There's a pending Esquire article, which has yet to be published, but he's gone to the, to the extent of preemptively denying it, which is always a good sign when you do that. Um, during the filming of this, and in fact, actually, apparently during the filming of X-Men Apocalypse as well, he would routinely not show up to work. Not show up. He'd leave the second unit director and the cinematographer to do a lot of the work shooting the film. The second unit director. His name. Sacred Egg. Sacred Egg. (laughs) (laughs) It was. We. (laughs) So yeah, he's done some excellent work. At the end of the movie, they say like the uh, this production um, gave jobs to to fifteen thousand workers and and one Sacred Egg. But uh, yes, the singer, but here's the thing. Singer was apparently when he took the role of director, he was given a stern talking to by the head of Fox, told that this would not happen again. This would not be tolerated. They would not put up with this. Um, Then he proceeded to do his usual business on the set. He wouldn't show up for work. He would get into vicious arguments with the cast. Apparently Remy Malek is the nicest man on earth. But at one point during a confrontation, Singer threw a spotlight, not necessarily at him, but in his general direction. Singer also, like, stopped going to work at one point. He claims it's to visit his sick mother, who was dealing with a family illness at the time, although Fox executives have pointed out that even though he was apparently visiting his sick mother, he was still hanging around, hanging around Los Angeles. All of this is in the context of a larger sort of thing around Singer involving allegations of abuse that are tied to the Kevin Spacey allegations as well. Um, and there's a sense that all of this is bubbling away in the background and waiting to come to the surface. Yeah, the Singer Singer is one of those Hollywood open secrets, and he, he has been for a long time uh, yeah. with regards to those allegations. Um, and I think this is part of the kind of disconnect between audiences who, like I say, wouldn't know about this, uh, and critics who would because they read the trades and write the trades and such. Um, I don't know if some of those critics feel comfortable supporting or endorsing or enjoying a film with with singer credited for it you know like but singer is at best really unprofessional i mean that's that's the best that's on the record of this scenario i mean but we're willing to show it, notes about i think that made people certain people think well this is going to be a complete disaster and yeah. but it's not for malik it's not for you know the the, the band or the, the people that, the other people that worked on the film well, this um, is this is the thing where like Singer is like he may be an unprofessional director and he may also be a criminal, uh, but he is also a fairly competent pair of hands in terms as a director. In terms of like his movies, while they haven't lived up to the prem- promise of like Unusual Suspects, tend to be at least competent in production. Right. And how much you can credit that to him based on the stories that you hear about his cinematographer and his second unit director. I saw X Men Apocalypse. I thought it was atrocious. I don't think that's a, a competent pair of hands. But that was one where he was again. Yeah, he that he, was he, he started not showing up to work on that. Not yeah. showing up, and that, that was, had to be finished by the screenwriter. Yeah, hey, had to step that? in. He's the guy who was directing X uh, Dark Phoenix. Basically, sort of, he was the one who had to step in on Apocalypse. But the the thing about giving him a second game. Did you just okay? No, no. The the writer of the screenwriter who yeah. stepped in and did a terrible job. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the <laughs> as same, a reward. But the, the same <laughs> thing's happening with Dexter Fletcher here, where Dexter Fletcher, who's credited as a producer but not a director, stepped in was a safe pair of hands. He's talked himself about how he didn't do any major rewrites or reinventions. He basically finished 
the original vision as outlined by Singer. In reward for that, his next film will be Rocket Man, which is a an Elton John biography. Oh, that's starring great. I'm looking forward to Taron that. Taron Egerton, yeah. It's fantastical. <laughs> but what would be great is if, uh, you know, on the basis of these this, these behaviors and these allegations would be if, that Singer would go away, but he's not. You know, the, yeah. this film, the fact that he's credited on it and it's made so much money will mean that he will continue to work. He's already got Red Sonia, I think. Yeah, which is a very, yeah, strange choice. And I mean, it, it's also, the thing is though that like, it, he shouldn't even have got this one. I mean, the, there, there's Fox executives wondering like, at what level do you have to screw up to not get handed a gig on this scale? Because like... It depends on things. Like, it depends whether, like... If you're an abuser, it's or alleged abuser, it's okay. Um, if you're a woman and you yeah. mess up a movie, or even if you don't overperform on it, yeah. you're out. Like we talked about this about kind of like the amount of chances, kind of like actors and Mel uh, directors Gibson, get. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like Mel, 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 Mel Gibson. Like, like we're talking about allegations. Uh, Brian Singer, but there's also like a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that people just know about. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because ultimately, it's a systemic problem, right? I mean, you can yeah. sort of pick on this one movie and this one director and be like, yes, like allegations, problematic, unprofessional behavior. But then you look at the system that keeps handing him gigs and go, yeah. well, like, okay, are we going to extend this to the <laughs> entire sure. Hollywood machine? And is that then? You know, it, it's, I mean, it's strange to me that, uh, like, this specifically for critics would be more problematic than, like, the Hollywood machine as a whole. But, I mean, like, surely but, you're in it, it, you know? You know, it is one of those things that's very messy, because a lot of those same critics would be, for example, eagerly waiting on the new Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And if you have relationships to Quentin Tarantino films because of your connection with him as a director, and then it turns out he's a less than stand-up individual. Which may have turned out to be the case. That may change your relationship with those films. It maybe has for me. Um, But if you have a relationship with this film on the basis of your connection to the band... Yeah, I don't know I, that that should change your relationship to your yeah. enjoyment of the film. I don't I'm, think it should at all, really. I'm fine with somebody being horrible, like and still enjoying their work, like 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 with with. Um... Well, Ron Polanski's Chinatown is an example of that. Like, for example, like I mean, this is something that we've sort of danced around on the podcast before. I like I mean, well, like with with cases like uh, Polanski and Allen, it's more difficult. But with somebody who's just not like a particularly cool person okay, like peter like, sellers for example but like where do you draw the line yeah. you know like is it like oh you have to be like an actual criminal or like or how criminal do you have it's to be very, can you just very, be unprofessional yeah like it's very unclear because like the the strong position to take is like i'm not going to watch movies um with uh abusers or alleged abusers yeah. um in them which but i is- which i think is what um uh Joe, who we had on the podcast, kind of has talked about doing as well. And I mean, this is, sorry, I would say this is interesting for me though, because like when I hear these conversations, a lot of the time it is men sort of talking about, like, well, like, can you still enjoy these movies? I have never enjoyed Woody Allen movies. Yeah. Like, because for, for me, he's always been creepy, pretty upfront about who he is. You know, it's all, right. it's all in there. And that's not an enjoyable narrative for me to watch and i think like especially like as like for me as like more and more allegations come out as part of the me too movement it's not a case for me of being like oh i guess i won't like enjoy this person's art anymore it's like i don't enjoy it anymore 
because I mean, in the vast majority of cases, you go back and look at like that person's material and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, like, well, the Woody I, Allen he, stuff is very hard to separate what he did from who he is in terms of because so much of uh, himself is in the film. With Louis C.K. as yeah, well. Yeah, yes. Where his big, what was supposed to be his big triumph was so tied to the truth about who he is and <laughs> the stuff that's been said about him that it, it was, they just killed it completely. You know, like a singer, I think, singer oh, is, is a workman-like uh, director, so he doesn't get that. You know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. In he, he's a gun for hire, so he doesn't get that kind of treatment. I think if the draw for audiences of Brian Singer films is that this is directed by Brian, by Brian Singer, then that would be it would issue. be different. But it's not. Yeah, nobody goes to see Valkyrie because it's a Brian Singer film. Um, yeah. Did anybody go to see Valkyrie? <laughs> Valkyrie. That's a fair point. But they they went to see an X Men film, yeah. or they, yeah, or they went Cruise to film. see even like the usual suspects because of the buzz about it and things yeah. like that. And that's just how you know I, it is a very murky uh, kind of field. But people react to and have connections to different things in films. Yeah, like I'm never going to watch a Woody Allen film again <laughs> uh, because he's creepy and gross, and that's in his films. Uh, but what again, about with, his, with, his clarinet with ta- playing? You <laughs> can still appreciate that, right? <laughs> but this, but, this right. is the thing where... But, it's, sorry. No, I sorry, shouldn't be glib. Um, but, like, for example, with Tarantino, like, I'm of that age and gender that, you know, Tarantino films were very kind of tied to my growing interest in, in film in general. I think I saw Kill Bill when I was, like, 12. And I had never seen anything like that. And it was kind of one of those whoa moments. And then I went and sought out his other films. But I don't really, I'm not really up for his next one because you just, if if these things make you see that person and their art in a different light, I think it can be difficult to go back to those things. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily personally be looking to see Brian Singer's next film uh, on the basis of the the allegations against him, I, I wouldn't support or lionize his work. But again, like I don't know I don't that that really matters that for anyway. yeah. Yeah, okay. I don't really think that matters for this film. It also yeah, sounds like he's not there much. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, he doesn't lionize his own work. Um, yeah. But I think it's like I mean, we're currently in a moment where we're working out, like where Hollywood is working out, like what we do with this. Because at the moment, it's just a cycle of like, Batman did bad things. Very big movie makes lots of money. How do we... How do reconcile we, How do two. we reconcile these things apart from just like on an in, pointing at things on an individual basis and being like, but look, problematic. And you're like, mm-hmm, okay. Uh, you know, and then here we are on the podcast talking about it, you know? Um, it's finally like Christopher Plummer is like, you see, I I told you that never... Uh, um, Having done any of these terrible things would, would finally pay off. <laughs> finally pay off for me. I love the idea. Now my phone rings. Yeah, I love the idea of Christopher Plummer being digitally re- digitally replacing Brian Singer behind the scenes. Of this. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is striking because yeah, this is the thing. I don't like. I don't think this will get major Oscar nominations, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did because the Oscars like biographies. They like feel good films, and they like films that allow them to say that they're engaged with like the popular mood. And I wouldn't be surprised to see this film sneak in some major nominations. And it would be very weird seeing Singer on the ballot. But we say that like Casey Affleck having an Oscar nomination, you know, that sort of stuff. Like it's, yeah, it's, this is the time we live in. It's very, very strange. 
Well, like, I mean, is 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 it a thing where, it, it, like, like to? I guess there's a question about like to what to what extent, like how mu- how much of a whiff, um, even, or does it need to be more than that? Uh, does there need to be about a person before we'll kind of um, act on it yeah. or at all? I mean, do we act at all? Like, I mean, the argument is that like that we have more we have recordings of Gibson and Gibson yeah. is coming back. Like Gibson is going to be directing. Like he's he's you know he's currently embroiled in an argument over a film he made with Robert Downey Jr. in Dublin. You know, but he's going to be making another film. He will get another round of Oscar nominations and stuff like that. And like that's stuff where we have tape recordings of him doing the things that he's done. But this is the thing. I mean, it's just like as long as you've got a system that enables this, nothing changes. You know, and that's what we have right now. So, yeah, I, I don't I mean, I don't know what the solution is, but, uh, you know. Um, just in terms of so I, I think we sort of talked a little bit about Singer there but in terms of bringing it back to talking about Queen who? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what's this? Um, yeah Smile if you will um, but yeah the great name for a band with a dental hygienist uh, at its core Dentist thank you very much <laughs> I I have to admit, I, I actually had kind of the opposite reaction to Marianne where like my coming out of the film like my takeaway from from Queen watching Bohemian Rhapsody was that Queen was comprised of four people, one of whom was Freddie Mercury, one of whom was the guy with long hair who talked to Freddie Mercury on behalf of the band. The other one was the boring one who, you know, was in the background and played bass. And the fourth one was the one who really, really, really wanted to have sex with his car. Like, those were the four attributes that I took away. I didn't, like, I didn't get a sense of May or Deacon... Or, you know, Taylor well, as drawn characters. Yeah, well, that was kind of my... And, like, obviously I was bringing my knowledge of them already to the places where we saw their interactions. But, yeah, I think it's sad that they didn't... Because they were, they're all four of them, like, really fascinating people in their own rights. Yeah, well, you they're know? all four of them. I don't know about Mercury, but the other three have PhDs, right? And they all have written songs that place in the top ten charts consistently. Like... Queen is those four people in terms of talent. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, yeah, just, I, yeah, I feel like that really got lost. And I think got lost for a lot of not particularly effective pathos around Freddie's story itself, you know? Some of it quite effective, though, like the cats, for example. Oh my gosh. I just, I. uh, I just love cats so much. <laughs> there were so yeah. many of them in this film. <laughs> Can you trace your love of cats back to your love of Freddie Mercury? No, like I didn't discover that uh, Freddie Mercury had a love of cats similar to mine until like later in and life. And he wrote a love song to one of his cats, I believe, as well. Yeah, no, he is... Um, he's a beautiful man. And I, I love that the movie sort of puts that up front as well. Like, it's very much like, uh, you will like Freddie Mercury because he is a man who likes cats. That's like the first thing that you get about it. I mean, they did the bit where he had like rooms for all his cats. I didn't yeah. think they were going to go there. But it was like, I have never related to someone more. They, when they do that, it's as part of like Freddie's... Uh, eccentric. Bad times. Yeah, how lonely you know? he oh, is. Oh, he's, he's fundamentally lonely because he... 
loves his cat so much, which isn't really fair to say. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, and this, yeah, this is kind of part of my problem with it in the way that it rolls out Freddie Mercury's story, where the the bad times that you get as part of the great musician biopic kind of un, you know unpack the box ready made yes. kind of thing is that it kind of treats him as like these are things that are fundamentally wrong with him you know his relationship with his father for example uh, his loneliness and in certain ways his sexuality it treats them in terms of how a movie story is told as these are the things that we got to get to the end to. Yeah. These are the things that we got to resolve. And I mean, I think, I think you're right. You said before we jumped to the sports, like you think a lot of this is unintentional. I think it entirely is because I think it's, it's, they have the arc that they want to tell and the story they want to tell is a story of a brilliant, lonely man who drifts away from the people who care about them, about him and has to be welcomed back. And to tell that story using Freddie Mercury, they apply ingredients from his own life in order to explain those arcs and those developments. So the people he moves away from have to be his adoptive family and queen. The people that he comes back to have to be that adoptive family and his parents. And the people who lead him away have to be Paul Prentice. Yeah, see, yeah, this is basically what I was saying. It's all right to have a kind of narrative about him being lonely and, and, and coming back. And living on that. his own. And sometimes that's, he feels he wants to break down and cry. Yeah, yeah that's all fine, but... <laughs> There, there are stories that you can tell without realizing that you're telling them. And when you're saying uh, he wasn't lonely when he was married to a woman, and when he's living with a man, he feels isolated and alone. I, 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 I don't think anyone is telling that story deliberately. But there, there's coding in a lot of this film that yeah. I found. Sure, because there's a like one of the big kind of turning points where his breakdown is him being like, "I'm bisexual." And Mary Austin being like, "No, you're gay," and that's kind yeah. of like, and, it's, and that kind of like marks his spiral uh, down his the start of the spiral like, downwards, which is like we should we should there, there even bef- before um, before um, it's Paul, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah but before Paul, you have uh, him um, in uh, America at like a the truck, truck stop, stop yeah. where yeah, he's see. on the phone to Mary and and, uh, <laughs> and like, as an audience, you know, he's Adam like, Lambert, by the way. I found that out by looking it up. Really? Yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> this cameo in the film. <laughs> Um, but you, you manly trucker you have but, this trucker like getting out of this Mack truck and walking through the door and you see on the door it says men and he's on the phone to <laughs> a woman and he woman. zooms yeah, in on the yeah. men and you it's like no Freddy don't sleep with men <laughs> yeah. you have so, that wonderful moment of eye contact stay with the woman well. that you're not attracted to but it is like having an epic shag from in, um, in, 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 in I, spite of everything and when you have when, when all the gay people that you're depicting in your film are like truck stop you know bathroom hookups or underage brazilian boys or leather wearing you know that is you know I don't, the best. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, there's a lot of fetishization of and irish people in this movie yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <It's>, much finally <laughs> but it's freddie is told that he's gay he, like he kisses two men in this film, and it's both both times it's them kissing him. Yeah. The other gay people that you see in this film are they're not stereotypes, but they're stereotypically they're presented, presented in a way that reflects like the archetypes of the gay community as tradi- uh, traditionally portrayed in straight I, media. Uh, it's not um, for, for me to say that that's 
that's wrong because that's other people's uh, experience of that but it is unfortunate sure i mean like there, there's a lot of stuff in here that you know i'm not entirely comfortable talking about like for example that scene where he comes out as bisexual and she tells him he's gay and there's a whole big argument among mercury fans about whether he really was bisexual because apparently he did have affairs with women in his later life and stuff like that and that gets erased and smoothed over but you also have this this weird push and pull that happens in the film and it's a result of the film being like a pg-13 film like, there's a really great, and I don't have the, the quote to hand, but something I saw on Twitter, which is, like, my big takeaway from Bohemian Rhapsody is that you can contract AIDS from heavy eye contact with unnamed oh, that male was extras. Oh, that was a tweet. Yeah, yeah that was, it was um... Yeah, no, it's really... And, like, I am, like, firmly in, like, camp, like, Freddie Mercury was bisexual, you know? Um, but it, it... This film really struggled with his sexuality. Which seems like if you're gonna make this about Freddie Mercury, you might you want have to have it, some yeah. kind of handle yeah. on that, you know? Just it just seemed so uncomfortable yeah, with I, it, yeah. you know? I think part of that is because again, this is a movie, so it has to have an antagonist, and it takes uh, Paul, who is one of the like real life people that they've taken a lot of historical liberties, liberties with, yeah. and written him really terribly. Like transparently is, evilly, like he, is, he he outmaneuvers Littlefinger. Like that's that's like how you establish Paul <laughs> is a terrible human being. Is he just gets Littlefinger into a position and kicks him out of a limo? Call, Freddie Mercury calls Aiden Gillen a treacherous it's, piss flap. Treacherous <laughs> piss flap. And it's in, sorry, I cannot like well, like anytime Aiden Gillen's in a movie, I'm just like it's Aiden Gillen. Like I cannot see him as like anything other than himself. And I was just like, oh, I didn't know Aiden Gillen was involved in Queen. <laughs> and, that uh, man has done everything yes. but Paul is played by Alan Leach from Man About Dog and um, unfortunately I didn't really find it to be a very good performance either he's very hamstrung by the writing but it's Paul just becomes more cartoonishly evil in every single scene yeah, yeah, yeah. one after the yeah. other there's it's, a moment where he picks up the phone and says oh sure I'll tell him you called and you yeah. can practically see him twirling his moustache even though it's his a leather oh, jacket it's did a lot more acting than he did and he becomes sure. more kind of like camp with every scene yeah well. stuff like that like makes this uh, a bad movie yeah the, the, and and like you want it to be to be a good movie because there there's there's so much kind of like surging kind of um uh in, in musical performances in it where um where yeah you it the 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 hackneyed kind of um um Hitting uh, of all the beats, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, the 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 kind of um, comic book villains, sort of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's even stuff like, say, the montage of the Munich Sex Club, which is again, <laughs> it's it's like. A, a, I wanted to this to be an 18s movie. Yeah. Like it was far too 12 or 13. Yeah, like I, I mean, want to like I don't want just like uh, he had that sugar on his table at yeah, one point. Yeah, and, <laughs> and like yeah, when Mary arrived and was like, "Look, they haven't even cleaned up from his sugar bin. <laughs> yeah. What kind of hellhole is he living in?" But I mean, it seems so like they portrayed Mercury as being just like consistently and profoundly miserable 
through like all the periods of his life where he was like partying hard and it just makes like then the fact that he gets aids so much more tragic because it's like oh he didn't even have a good time well this is you know this is is the pg-13 aspect where like you get the sense like freddie mercury is famous for throwing his parties i mean in real life you have the famous story about the album launch of jazz in in new orleans where they had like transvestites and they had women who could smoke cigarettes through various parts of their anatomy. They had cocaine being wandered around on silver platters and stuff like that. You have his, what's his 37th birthday party where he took everybody to the island of Ibiza. Um, wasn't, and they, it wasn't, yeah, didn't they, like they referenced it a little bit in the movie, but what, wasn't it uh, like um, little people? Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah with, with um, platters on, on their heads. With, with, and that's, with that's the thing. But the, Studio 54 as well. Yeah. And all of that sounds like great fun. But, but none <laughs> of it's in like, the film. Have, having the one scene that's like, like that is like his nadir where he's yeah. at his worst. But, but, yeah, but this but is the, most tied to it's Paul. Like, and, yeah. Yeah. and it's just, and the other members of the band just like, we're here with our wives. They need to get home. But that's that's the thing. When when they have when they have that scene of Freddie's party and Brian's like, oh well, we don't really like to do this sort of thing. Like it's the film very clearly wants you to go. Well, look at how Freddie's spiraling out of control. But the way the scene is played because his party is so PG thirteen is like Brian May probably has to go snort several lines of cocaine (laughs) off a prostitute at a much better house party. Thank you very much. Yeah, maybe that was it. Maybe they were like, yeah, this party's crap. I'm sorry, Roger Taylor knew how to party I don't know oh, yeah. why they were like oh he's also like kind of a bit uptight like he no. didn't want the champagne he yeah. was like uh, pass this the champagne Paul <laughs> that was the one moment that established Paul as a true monster was when he refused to pour Roger champagne because there is overfill Freddie's champagne as well yeah. how is he supposed to gesticulate with a full glass of champagne <laughs> like that but I, lo- I also love that scene because like they have like really dramatic departure moments for Roger and for Brian but Deacon seems to just disappear between cuts. Deacon is like sitting there behind Freddy and then he's gone. It's There's just this like recurring thing as well between Freddy and Roger uh, and Roger where it's like Roger Roger Raj if you will. Um, yeah. Uh where um where where he's like, what about you? You um, sleep with other women besides your wife, and he's like, watch it, Freddie. <laughs> Be cool, careful Freddy. now. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you know about your code? You're yeah. gonna blow up my spot. <laughs> yeah, I think people, some people might have got what you were trying to say. There. Yeah. <laughs> And they do it like several times. So lazy. It is, but it's so lazy and it's so family friendly. Like there is that level of denial like, where the only real incident of drug use is that shot of the table with like some white powder stainage on it yeah. where it looks like he could have just like dropped a rasher on it and smeared it a little bit and that would get yeah. the same like, effect. You, what does he say? Do, 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 the cleaner condition <laughs> is... Sometimes you need to... He says something very... Oh, the human condition sometimes requires aesthetic. aesthetic. It's like, I'm pretty sure Freddie Mercury never said that. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't seem... It just... I I hate the... uh, I I wonder, like, uh, to... Uh, whether any of it was taken from actual kind of happenings, but the press conference. Oh yes, like tell me. Um, How about your sexuality? Of your sexuality. Um, 
Tell us sexuality about your allegations, none. Uh, it's like Does he that takes everyone's kind of question, um, and, question and fires it back. Would it, your parents be proud of you, Freddie? Would your parents be proud of you? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. No taxi backsies. Did you do good do deeds, you? good whatever it was? Yeah. <laughs> good words, good deeds, good, uh, good actions? Yeah. Freddie, do you have AIDS? <laughs> Does AIDS have you? <laughs> um, there are four people up here, you know. Um, and I love, I love Deacon's interjection with Ida Cold, actually. And you're like, oh. <laughs> Oh, I love him. Um, yeah, and also just Mary Austin being like then like shoehorned into the role of like waiting at home, being come putting home, the Freddy. light on, and yeah, yeah. just and, like and him being possessive and jealous while he's off doing what he's doing. And... But I mean, they did have like a beautiful lifelong friendship and he she, left almost everything to her and his cats right and she was and he loved his cats she was uh, with him or like in Montreux with him like when he died I mean she yeah. like oh, it was really sad <laughs> Brian Taylor was on his way and was told to turn around because I mean yeah so I just I was sad that her role like became a very standard woman role of like, would you ever just like come home and calm down? The yeah, the wife of the great but man. Even though that, how one... did you find that performance? Oh, like upset. I mean, yeah, upsetting. Basically, just kind of so. Um, like, there was nothing kind of uh, down to earth in her character. Yeah. Which, well, she was an ideal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She started to ask him, "What's it like being so brilliant?" Which yeah. I think she. I have it in my notes. <laughs> no, I. I sarcastically wrote what's it like being so brilliant she does ask him like what's when you're up there with all those people it's one of those kind of things yeah and there's a lot of like you're going to do amazing things and then why that's really beautiful Freddie yeah and why won't you just come home Freddie and now I'm just going to like stand on the edge of the stage and cry and you know well I mean this is the thing though this is something that happens quite a bit with biographies of gay men where you have this weird and I don't know if it's like patronizing to audiences or desire to break through to America where they're uh, Puritans in public and perverts in private but you have like this fixation in narratives about gay men on the women or the, the women who became involved in their lives as if to like make it acceptable to like heteronormative audiences I'm thinking in particular of say Kira Knightley in The Imitation Game which is another famous 250 movie it dropped off but it was in there for about two years uh, where you had another, it was a story of Alan Turing, but it was very fixated on the woman he eventually married. As if to say, well, maybe his life wouldn't have been so tragic if he just, you know, stayed married like a man should, apparently. And in, it's such a pity as well, because like, I always like, and again, like as a younger person, like I loved the story of Mary and Freddie's friendship because it was such a, and I think Freddie's life in general was such a beautiful illustration of like the most important person in your life doesn't have to be like a romantic connection like you can have a lifelong companionship with someone that doesn't fit into like normal models which i think is also like part of being a queer person you know and i just like uh, but yeah this movie seemed like a very determined like to shoehorn it into like a sort of heteronormative narrative and then just also kind of like, I think, yeah, most of the time, like, basically, like, after they break up, like, we just largely see conflict between them for yeah. the rest of the movie. It's or one, isolation. or like, yeah, yeah, or just, like, like, oh, sorry. Oh, no, Luke. It's the one bit of dialogue that I wrote down because I thought it, like, it worked for me, which is when they do have the kind of coming out scene and she asks, like, what do you want from me? And he says, almost everything. 
Like this is a real relationship, and it, it, yeah. it is worth exploring in that way. And this is where I talk about it not being deliberate again. I, I think just the, they they feel they need to do it in a certain way, and it does go imitation gamey. Yeah, but I I thought it worked in certain ways. This is the actress from Sing Street. It is um, indeed Lucy Boynton. Boynton. Yeah, I didn't think she was bad, but it, it's again, it's like if they give her a bit more, or if that's the story that you're interested in, and then maybe that's the story, and not so much the, you know, it's just one of yeah. those things. I mean, it's also worth noting when you talk about Freddie's sexuality, the portrayal of Jim Hutton, his uh, platonic boyfriend, um, which is a very strange thing in the movie. And this is some of the things where we talk about the movie, like weirdly, like desexualizing Freddie's homosexuality, but also like in the ways that it was like wholesome and fulfilling. So like whenever Freddie's like gayness or queerness is something positive, it's like stripped of any sexual context whatsoever. So like himself and, and Hutton meet when Freddie sexually harasses him after a birthday party, after a party. But it's very wholesome. He like takes him to meet his parents. He searches through the phone book for him and visits him at home right before Live Aid. In reality, they met at a gay bar and they did have that conversation where Jim was interested in him, but thought that he needed, you know, maybe to grow up a little bit. And they met coincidentally at a gay bar a couple of years later and had a very loving, very fulfilling relationship. But here there's something very weird in how it's portrayed as almost angelic. In fact, he meets Hutton for the second time after he gets his AIDS diagnosis. So it's heavily implied that they can't be sexually active together in a way that Freddie would have been in his earlier years. And it has a really weird effect of, like, making Freddy's sexual activity seem dangerous. Oh, absolutely. Because it's tied to, like, you have, like, the scene of another one bites the dust playing over Freddy goes to a dungeon with people in leather chaps, followed by him coughing up blood at the studio, which is, like, basically this narrative of Freddy almost being punished for indulging his sexuality by getting AIDS, which was a narrative that was spun in the 80s. Um, and I mean, you have stuff like the, the Manchester, you know, Metropolitan Police coming out and describing it as punishment for people who are that, you know, who are gay. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was horrifying. And I mean, we look back and it's what horrifying. What crimes would the Manchester Police punish people for if AIDS for, didn't exist? By, yeah. um, oh, sorry, they weren't giving people AIDS. Oh, no, they weren't. No, no, their, their, their position I'm was... I'm sorry. The, the commissioner came out and actually literally said in a press conference that he saw it as punishment for the behavior and if people behaved more respectively and more respectfully and with dignity then this wouldn't be an issue but that was the horror of that time like it was and like this movie did nothing to challenge that and it was just like the like yeah it's exactly like you said it's like the only okay gay relationship is one that's completely stripped of like any sexual element it's like we hold hands and meet the parents yeah like you can almost imagine uh, do they show the picture at the end of him with the kitten as well which is like and that's lovely himself and Jim were very happy together I'm also sure they had sex yeah. Um, but it's like if you watch the film the impression you get is well they raised cats together they became crazy cat men together no but uh, that, that, that was their real you know that, that that's a real picture you know yeah. it's nice to see that but cinematically you make you make certain choices and to show him going on the morning of live aid to his parents house for tea with jim hutton which i'm sh- i could be wrong i'm sure it didn't happen no it didn't it happen. was very it like a very long day <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's i was very lucky that you were the third jim hutton on the list yeah. that that's a choice 
someone, whether yeah. it's the screenwriter or the directors, has decided that we as an audience need to see that this relationship has the endorsement of his parents, has the endorsement of Lucy. Like, their and friends, the Queen itself as well. Like not Lucy, sorry, yeah. Mary. Um, and yeah, it was very love actually. Yeah. Like, the, like turning up at the house. Oh my God. Yeah, no. Freddie with sunglasses and Bohemian Rhapsody. But, with, yeah. I Jim, see a little silhouette of a man, question mark. Jim Hutton is framed during the during the redemptive Live Aid performance. He's framed with Mary and her boring <laughs> new I want to see where Aidan Gillen was in that. He even and, went back to Mike Myers. Yeah. And the, the implication the is that this is like she kind of re- gives him a reassuring pat and it's like Welcome to the family. Blessing yeah. Kind of yeah. It's like, well, why does it need that? Well, that's, that's, I, that's the thing is that like the film's narrative is basically, and it happens repeatedly where like, and this is where it's like, this is a movie produced by Queen and it's a very like Queen friendly and it's been argued that this is how Queen see themselves. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the historical inaccuracies outside of Freddie Mercury's like timeline later on. But like in terms of how the story is portrayed and it, it's interesting because we mentioned Deacon being the member who was closest to Freddie yet somehow being the member who's furthest from Freddie in the context of the film. But here, what you have is the arc of Freddie rejecting Queen rejecting his family and it happens like when they're introduced to Aidan Gillen it's like we're a family but no two members of us are alike and you have them meeting each other's parents and you have them basically becoming a family unit and you have the moment when Freddie storms out and you know Brian May is like you need us Freddie maybe more than you know and there's a sense that like Freddie needs to ignore any non like heteronormative straight family with their wives and their kids and their parents he needs to like you know he needs to ignore anything outside of that he needs to come back to it and he can only be redeemed when that family and those extended families with their wives and their kids and their parents welcome him back in in a way that feels very unsettling in a way that feels like a rejection of mercury but feels like a validation of queen like, it feels like May and Taylor, like, you can see them as producers saying, well, the arc of this film is Freddie leaves us, realizes how wrong he was to do that, comes back, we forgive him, it's all good. And it's strange. It's very disconcerting to watch. I, yeah, I found that kind of troubling because it, uh, I'm, I'm sure, like, I've no doubt that Freddie Mercury was very dear to Brian May and to the other members of the band, but again it's like he belongs to us now kind of a thing indirectly where it's you know they they show the the charity that they've set up now uh in his death and it's it's his image is now theirs to control control and shape going forward this movie is their sign off on who freddie mercury was that to me i found a bit unsettling uh in in certain ways like uh, and yeah, it is that kind of Freddie has to come back to us in order to get his redemption. Yeah. That um, ultimately is the story that they have told. Yeah. Uh, their their intentions there are very ambiguous, but that's what the part film of, you can almost depicts. yeah, you can like you can re- read into that all sorts of stuff and assume that maybe that's the story that they want to tell from their perspective. They want to tell a story about how they understand and how they welcome Freddie back, but the narrative arc of the film is Freddie has to come back and be forgiven. But they don't, like, I mean, I could have gotten behind that narrative more, I think, if the film had overall been more 
strongly focused on the relationships between these four people. Yeah. But like you said, instead, we have to have some of Freddy's family. We also have to have it like emphasized several times that the other three members of the band are all in heterosexual relationships. <laughs> like, I think there's literally a line where Freddie is like, no, you all have families. Yeah. You all have wives and kids. Yeah, like, and co- <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's yeah. so well, like yeah, Roger Taylor's <laughs> wife is a car, obviously. <laughs> but um, but like it's it's so kind of explicitly Careful, drawn. Careful, Luke. It's it's. <laughs> That's what he was referring to the whole time. <laughs> yeah. like, Does your wife know you sleep with your car? <laughs> but you know, it's not just about oh our friendship. It's also about like he seems to have such an issue with their families because they were four very different, very strong personalities, even John Deacon in his own way. You know, and that's what makes the story of Queen so fascinating. But instead, it like it seemed to be very focused on the fact that like, oh, you all have families, and where's my family? And like, yeah, like there's a yeah. moment where like when he the moment when like sort of you know eighties Freddie with his tightly cropped hair and his mustache mm. and all his clones uh, later on in the film are revealed. That's the moment where like Roger Taylor's like, well, I'd, I'd love to eat Chinese food off the floor with you, Freddie, but I have to go home to be with my family. Yeah. You, uh, you and your cats have a good evening. And you're also and, like, uh, Roger Taylor, really? Yeah. Roger, Roger Taylor? Taylor? <laughs> the party animal. I had a kind of like a sympathetic enough sort of a reading of the third act of the movie, but I, I think it was too little too late yeah. because um, it seemed like throughout the movie... Freddie had this kind of guilt about kind of who he was and what he was doing and this kind of like ambivalence about it. And after the diagnosis, he kind of spends some time thinking about it. And he says, no, I'm not going to be the um, kind of victim or or, or, uh, poster boy for the AIDS crisis or cautionary tale. I know who I am. And, and, and it's at that point that, that, that he, uh, finally goes back to, 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 to Jim Hutton. And it seems to kind of, like I say, it sort of inverts that story that the movie was trying to tell. Yeah. But it, it's, it, as I say as well, it, it is too little too late yeah. because it's, says, it's already decide. lost. He says, I decide like who I am and all that when he's in the church yeah. with them. And it's like, unfortunately for the last two hours, you've had no agency as a character. Yeah. So, yeah. At, at the scene in the church, I liked because it was, kind of the four of them and it did establish you know it, very affecting and it did kind of establish this relationship that they had i do um, love that roger taylor's first line is like after that is like he's like, i don't want to be a poster child and, and he's like but you're a legend freddie um, yeah. you're a wizard harry yeah. <laughs> but, but, and that was cornball huh? yeah. i like that he said no we're all legends yeah yeah and it you know are they princes uh, of the universe <laughs> one of my favorite uh scenes because it is apparently like very true to how John Deacon worked is when he was he's just like don't care that you're fighting I'm just gonna play this bass riff until you pay attention <laughs> well, that, that happens that happens twice like yeah. this is very much like the, and again I want you wonder how much of this is Queen's like narrative of events versus reality where like you have scenes where Freddy shows up and they're ready to get fighting but the music is just so strong it happens first of all with uh, we will rock you which is, by the way, actually, like, and this is interesting because Marianne was saying, like, she liked it best when the film focused on Queen. Though These are the moments where it worked, like, best for me, where the moments were focused almost on the creative process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, 
there are a lot of really corny moments where they explain the concept of queen, where you have like where Littlefinger shows up for lunch and they're like, queen is a bunch of people in the back of the room playing. I don't know why I'm talking like Mike Myers, but it's a bunch of people in the back of the room playing to other people in the back of the room so that they all feel connected. We're like a family, but no two members are alike. And you have that whole sort of thing. And you have like the moment where they're discussing Bohemian Rhapsody. And is it Taylor's like, uh, nobody can define what Queen is yeah. uh, because Queen is so many things. Where you have like this big philosophical, like, you know, sort of like modern blockbuster, yeah. like explain the theme of the movie and dialogue that happens. But you have like, that works best for me in like the sequences where you have May like looking at the performance in, I think it's Argentina, um, in South America, in Rio. Anyway, in Rio, sorry, in Rio, um, where the the group, the, the audience is playing the songs back to them. And like May realizing that like part of what makes Queen unique is that dialogue between the band and the audience and designing We Will Rock You as a song that they can play themselves. And you can see that like throughout Queen's work, there's a lot of that in there. Like again, May has talked about We Are The Champions, which is that another May uh, credit, I believe? It might be, but May has argued basically that the film, the song is frequently misunderstood. We Are The Champions is not Queen in an act of hubris. It's a song that's designed to be sung by the audience. Yeah. Uh, in the way that it's structured as well. And it's because like, it's become one of those songs. It's 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 a song that like a winning team yeah. sings like from the top of a bus. Yeah, uh, the because... echo and the call back and stuff like that. It's it's also structured in a way that it's easy for a crowd to sing the chorus yeah, as well. Yeah. It's, it's in that live performance for that reason. Yeah. yeah, and and I mean like that's the part of the film that I really liked, and they have that again as you pointed out. Where Freddie comes in and he's having, he's a, again, it's another argument with Raj uh, or Raji or Roger, if you will, um, where like Roger, I, I believe it possibly comes from another insinuation that Roger may be screwing his car, um, but where they're like, oh, show me how good a boxer you are, Freddie. And I wanted to see that. <laughs> and and Deacon's I felt, just, I felt like uh, Freddie was actually going to be tidy enough in that. I want. I, 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 I wanted to see. He's taller than. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. It was difficult to believe Rami, but like I, I imagine um, uh, the real Freddie Mercury could have, could have like uh, Taken thrown Taylor. down. Yeah, He's but yeah. flexible, flexible man. This yeah. was like, like you can definitely move. But I think like you all those moments. Yeah, and like for me, it was almost sort of then became like two movies. Where I was yeah. sort of like sad and bored when it was like, oh, Paul really isn't good for you, Freddie. Like, maybe you should like get up and go for a walk. I don't know. And what then. Do mean, what do you mean? I'm not good for him. Yeah, like, like stabbing him in the butt. Just like becoming like. I particularly like the moment where like Brian May, producer of the film that you're watching, is like, we don't like Paul. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah, it's like, like, I think that came across Brian. They, they yeah. didn't, I, I looked at, they yeah. didn't like him yeah. as a manager. No, no, yeah. like, Well, Paul, or, he, yeah. he never gave that TV interview and he never tried to stop Freddie from performing at Live Aid. He did write a memoir and he did sell stories to the Sun in 1987. Yeah, but how do you yeah. portray that in a movie yeah, yeah, without yeah. having the interview? Yeah, yeah. I was, I, yeah, but I think it was like, they did like and all the bits when they're in the house recording Bohemian Rhapsody and like yeah. you know Rogers in the box being like how high I feel like my nuts are in my chest like I mean all that is just <laughs> that's what I want to see more of that like, worked yeah. oh and you have that really corny moment where they're doing the student demo and again this is one of those things it's the cliche music bio picture yeah. beat but the film hits it so well where they're recording and you have I think it's Brian May saying 
we have to get a bit more experimental. And in the background, you have Roger Taylor punching the air yeah. in slow motion. You're like, this is cheesy, but yeah. I'm with it. But that's why I'm here. I yeah. want like men in wigs hamming it up. Some, <laughs> see, some, there's a scene, one of the funny scenes in, in Walk Hard is when he's kind of taking off. Um, is it Pet Sounds? Pet Sounds, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And he's bringing in all these ridiculous things into the studio. But these things uh, actually, happen. ha- actually happening or being shown in a movie isn't necessarily wrong. Yeah, the recording uh, of Bohemian Rhapsody, I actually enjoyed. Yeah, but yeah. It, it came as kind of a roller coaster for me, where him wandering out into the field <laughs> is and, and just hearing it and it just coming to him is oh, kind of or, the nadir of the Freddy focused. Or or the, the bit where experience. he's sitting in a rocking chair, staring out over the countryside, writing something down, pausing, looking up to the sky, and going. That's really quite good. Like, uh, and then going back to Ryan. Ernest Andrew moments. did that for your little uh, transition bit before we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> that really is quite good. But, but those are bad bits I've seen in a hundred bad bits. That's it exactly, that's, yeah. That's Ed Harris as yeah. Pollock and you know, yeah. all this kind of thing. Or the but, bit where, where he's sitting down with Lucy playing that, the piano upside uh, down. That's what I wanted like, to say. That, that was kind of too cheesy to me because not only has that been done in lots of these musical biopics but it's been parodied yeah. so, so much like there, there's there's a great thing with um, in the Adam and Joe show where they're 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 doing um, it's the the vinyl countdown where they go uh, speak to somebody about their vinyl collection but it's Ray Manzarek and Ray walks in to Joe playing on the piano he's like do 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 and then Ray is like let me try that it's like doodle do 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 doodle do 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 but when they ever and this film's called Bohemian Rhapsody and Bohemian Rhapsody as a song is kind of the film is kind of positioning that as their statement of and it's it's a willfully obscure song like it's a song that has been interpreted many different ways it's frequently read as Freddie coming out to his mother um, is one of the more uh, sort of common readings these days of Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, but yeah. you, feel, you feel that energy of, of the creative process when mm. they're doing that. Yeah, just do that for the when they're swinging When they're swinging stereos and chasing it with microphones and, the bit and stuff where, like that. Uh, Roger Taylor's getting very annoyed that no one likes his car song and <laughs> it cuts away, but he's about to chuck the coffee pot at them and they're like, not the coffee pot! But this, this, I want to actually quickly talk about this because like I watched it a second time and what I really liked about it the second time is ignoring like the creative decisions involved in many of these choices the editing in the film is phenomenal um, in particular like the way that that works with that scene so Freddie goes outside and then you cut back to Taylor picking up the coffee machine and May and Deacon being like not the coffee machine yeah. you have a moment like during that scene that we discussed with the men door and the camera focusing in on it you have as the guy as the gentleman is go Adam Levine is going into the bathroom um you and the door closing you have a cut to um to Mary closing and locking the door in her own apartment as well which is like it's a bad storytelling choice because it plays into all the cliches that we were talking about but if you have to do it it's a very stylish way of doing it and communicating what you intend to communicate even if what you intend to communicate is not a good thing Adam it, Lambert sorry did Adam I say Lambert. Levine before no I may I may have just Lambert's the one that <laughs> does the vocals for Queen now really oh wow yeah 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 ah. when they perform wow. now Adam Lambert is, is the like lead singer ah. um, um, yeah but I don't think you could debate it's a very stylish movie you it know. is like I mean, and you, being honest, you 
Watching it, it's kind of, it's like, um, what was the one this year? Oh, it was like Star Wars, it was Solo, where you watch Solo and like you're aware of the car crash that happened behind the scenes. And watching the movie, you would never have any idea that anybody cared about this movie in any way whatsoever. You would assume that it just sailed through production and nobody gave it a second glance. Which is, you know, not a good thing for the film, but it's remarkable in terms of, like, contrasting what you know of the narrative behind the scenes with what you get on screen. If you watch this movie blind, I'm fairly sure you would have no idea that, like, it had a turbulent behind-the-scenes history. Because it's all very smooth and very stylish. There are a number of, like, you know, directorial elements that are cliche and hackneyed. There's a lot of digital photography of camera moving through stuff that it shouldn't move through. I'm thinking of like the bit with the bus where they're singing Fat Bottom Girls where the camera goes through the bus or even the bit where, for example, on Live Aid, it goes through the piano in order to come out on stage, which is all like, look at this. This is a movie that has definitely been directed. The transition from Freddy's uh, drain to the satellite dish, which is also like, hey, look, we know how to frame a shot. And it is very well put together. It's remarkable. It's, it's a lot of the storytelling that kind of um, let lets it down. Or maybe, maybe doesn't like. Or like we've talked about it being hackneyed. What about the moment where, um, like Bob Geldof behind the scenes says, "Like <laughs> I'm sorry, Bob. Nobody likes Live Aid. <laughs> <laughs> All of these bands are rubbish, and no one's tuned in yet." But what about Speedwagon? Money. Have we made? <laughs> Have we made one million yet? Sorry, we wait, haven't made wait, any zero money. money. <laughs> zero money. No, no, we no. are the champions. One million money. <laughs> Literally. Let's, let's, okay, let, let's jump into this and let's talk about Live Aid, right? Because Live Aid is one of the, the points in the film where you get that dichotomy between it being insanely accurate in terms of how it looks. There's a viral video I'm going to include in the show notes that plays the performance of Queen at Live Aid side by side with the sequence in the film. Everything from the positioning of the Pepsi cups on top of the piano to Remy Malek's like beat for beat performance. He apparently watched the video 1,500 times, he claims, in order to get all of the steps absolutely right. It's nearly as many times as me then. Yeah. So. <laughs> but it's, it's absolutely perfect in recreating that, which is the public face of Queen. And that makes sense because for many people, that will be Queen. Many people in the audience who are like 40 or 50 will have watched Live Aid and that would have been their defining memory of Queen. So it's important to do that accurately. But on the other hand, everything else around Live Aid is completely obscured and distorted. For example, Freddie Mercury didn't get his AIDS diagnosis until two years after Live Aid and didn't tell the band until two years after that at a quiet dinner. Um, Things like Paul was still involved as manager during Live Aid. The issue with Live Aid wasn't that they didn't want to do it. In fact, like Freddie Mercury wasn't the first member of Queen to record a solo album. Do you want to guess? Who the first member of Queen to record a solo album was. Marianne knows. So I'm not going to say. So. Okay. Was it Roger Deacon and it was a song of love songs. An album of love songs. The, to the cinematographer Roger Deacon. <laughs> you're, you're close. It was Roger Taylor. Roger Taylor. Yeah, it Sorry. Was Taylor recording his first album in 1981. But also. Same Roger Deacons does capture two members today. <laughs> of the band together. They work together collaboratively. They decided that neither, neither of them would be. <laughs> Two-armed Voltron is a rhythm section. (laughs) 
drumming with one yeah. hand and strumming with the other. And neither of them will be credited individually as a cinematographer is what's important in this allegiance. But the thing is that, like, so you have, for example, the whole thing where Freddie leaves the band, except he doesn't, because in real life, while he was recording Mr. Bad Guy, the band put out the works, which went two times platinum. You have, like, oh, my God, can you play Live Aid? You guys may be over the hill. Which is not the narrative of what happened with Queen. Does anybody know what happened with Queen and Bob Geldof? And like, do they know it's Christmas and Live Aid? Does anybody have like know the background here? Because there's a very clear sense of why Queen want this narrative told about it. Marianne seems to be nodding. Yeah, but again, Darren, I feel like you 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 want to tell the story. No, okay. go for it. I would rather not. Okay, so um, Queen in the 80s had a reputation for being sort of crass and commercialist and pursuing money at all costs. And in some cases, money at all costs meant performing in a part, thank you, Luke, meant performing. Good deeds, good acts. <laughs> good that, that's what yeah. Good important. words. Yeah, I love that Freddie's like, and nobody's getting paid for it. As if to say, you deserve a pat on the head, Freddie. Yeah, Go back and, to your four million record. All the money from Live Aid actually went to Africa. But as as happy as that was, it was touching. I I I I, I cried at that Aww. because I like I tend to cry in movies when there's like a kind of a, a, a um, characters being uh, reunited with their fathers as this kind of like, which is strange because I have a very good relationship yeah, with my father. This. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, paradox of like having healthy relationships with your dad, and, but somehow uh, but wanting to reconcile with him anyway. Are you just are you just like, oh, Freddie got on my level? Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have such a great relationship with my dad that I'd like to reconcile with him. <laughs> but first, we'd have to not have a good relationship. I feel like I'm missing out. I want to live vicariously <laughs> through Freddie. But like, so for Queen, we're so fixated on money. They did a number of questionable mm-hmm. things, including the Flash Gordon soundtrack. But chief among them was... <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, it's not questionable. Chief among them... Savior of the universe. But not of apartheid South Africa. Because they broke the boycott of apartheid South Africa and performed several concerts there. They also performed in... Was it Pinochet's Argentina? If I remember correctly as well. They um, went everywhere. They went everywhere. Oh, Chile. Oh, Chile, sorry. But they also, apparently, and Mercury was really, really hurt when Geldof didn't call them to participate in Do They Know It's Christmas. So far from it being a situation where it's like, they really want you to perform Live Aid, apparently Mercury was really, really, really upset that he didn't get invited to Do They Know It's Christmas and apparently pretty much invited himself to Live Aid. Which is... Uh, so you can see why the band would want the narrative in the film to be like, well, we're the young up-and-comers. We're competing with Oreo Speedwagon, as opposed to, well, we're kind of easing ourselves back after like performing in apartheid South Africa. Damn it, we know it's Christmas. We're going to prove it. <laughs> um, yeah. So I with these graphs. Uh, so my kind of like <laughs> knowledge of the background of this was very colored by the fact that my father hates Bob Geldof. <laughs> oh, wow. did, did Freddie Mercury get portrayed as that hero who went where no one else no, would go? No, no, no. I mean, like, oh, sorry, it sounds like like my family had very strong opinions, but like we were a we were a Geldof like skeptical household, I would say. But we actually had 
a vi- again a video cassette that was both the recording for Do They Know It's Christmas and Live Aid like back to back. So you see that like after, or maybe it was like Do They Know It's Christmas was afterwards. Anyway, that was also something I like watched obsessively. I was like. Queen there. Yeah. <laughs> and when, when you found out where Queen like, were, yeah, exactly. I did not have like. Can't really that. fault anyone for for having issues with Bob Geldof. He's no, no. What <laughs> um, I mean, like his his character defining moment in this is like, even if you don't have money, I want it. Sure, and I think he's like. I mean, and obviously it's sort of. I mean, you get it's a bit like cringy, kind of looking back. Uh, now with a sort of like more nuanced understanding of like Africa and aid <laughs> and, and the way the they pro- talk about Africa in the film even reflects that but I mean the way they talked yeah, about on, that like, whole we're, we're, generation yeah well, I mean, we're being I mean, very revisionist I like, mean to be fair they, the film the film's entire premise seems to be that Live Aid exists to redeem Freddie Mercury like the story of Live Aid is the story of how Freddie Mercury. It wasn't Mercury a movie about him. Live Aid I, I know it, it was it was a movie about Freddie Mercury and using Live Aid as a way to as a vehicle both bring the, the band back together yeah. and uh, reconcile himself with his his father and I, I guess kind of like show that he had he um, I don't know had grown as a person but, but like I love that he's grown as a person by doing this charity gig where we're not going to actually focus on any of the charity work involved but I mean it's so interesting and like you know sort of hearing this again because it actually does make me because I watched I think we wore out that cassette like that VHS in my house like uh, the amount of times I watched Live Aid and it does make me cringe like as a kid how I just thought this was like the best thing in the world and everyone involved is such a hero and like the poor starving (laughs) children in Africa like I absolutely kind of I mean and in fairness I was like nine you know uh you know, and I've, like, worked in, like, aid organizations since then. So I kind of, like, I look back on that and I'm like, geez, like... But, like, you can see um, why that, like, very simple, like, save the starving children... Well, that, it gets the message like, across. In the yeah. same way that this gets the message across by Queen. People, like, audiences respond to very simple, very straightforward narratives. Like, that, not necessarily nuanced. Like, they like the... A simple, straightforward message that cuts straight to the point. Sure. And I mean, like, yeah. and that's the thing is that that's why you get the weird thing where Bob Geldof. By the way, have you guys heard about? Do they know it's murder? Hang on. No. <laughs> this is this is possibly the 2019 movie I am most excited about. When? Sorry, this is a bit of a tangent. Um, Luke, no, do you know what this is? What? Have you not heard of this? No, Darren. Do they know? Do they it's know? Like, it's... Do you want us to tell you about this movie, or are you going to tell us <laughs> well, about this movie? I'm going to murder us on the podcast because that's what it feels like it's about to happen. Building up to do they know it's murder? He's do they know his it's hands? <laughs> do, do they know it's murder? Is Some a... gas comes out of the microphone. <laughs> yeah. Finally, um, did you know it's murder? Um, the twist is yes, yes, it is murder. It is so, always murder. Hold on, but that it's microphone a... with the poison in it isn't working. Let me just adjust, <laughs> Let me just adjust that. that slightly. Um, but do they know it's murder? Is a proposed uh, film. It's got a script that's being developed at the moment. I think it's in production. But the basic concept is that during the recording of Do They Know It's Christmas, Bob Geldof comes across a body 
I think it may be a member of Oreo Speedwagon shoved in a closet at, during the recording session and has to A, complete the recording of Do They Know It's Christmas and B, find out which celebrity involved is responsible for murder. This is what? the best thing I've ever heard. Tell me that you're not in, I am, in on this. I am so excited. Like, oh, that is... Oh my god, and I know the whole recording of it shot for shot already. Like, oh my god. And so I, you're getting called in as leading I love, And I love true crime. Oh it's my god. I know it's, it's not. It's like a mix, like a mixture of uh, like Cluedo and Weekend at Bernie's. Oh my god, it was Cindy Lauper. Be <laughs> honest, <laughs> my money's possibly on Freddie Mercury, given what we learned um, in this particular no, podcast. No, hasn't Bowie drank his blood? <laughs> <laughs> Freddie will get the blame, but of course it was really Paul. Oh, I, I so understand exciting. having to be heavy-handed about Live Aid. I did think, for those who haven't seen the film, I did think the scenes where Paul was taking food out of the hands of starving African children was a bit heavy-handed. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little you don't need this food. <laughs> That's for Freddy. I love, I, 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 love, I love the sequence where like Miami Beach is ringing up and he's, he's basically telling the sob story and it's like, it's to help the starving children in Africa. And you can see Paul rolling his eyes like mouthing tosser while listening to the story about poor starving oh. children. It's like uh, Miami, it's trade, not aid. <laughs> and you don't solve development goals by throwing money at it. <laughs> I know you ethno-colonialists <laughs> <laughs> You don't know me at all <laughs> What a true thing for me darling The movie we deserve <laughs> <laughs> I loved as well that like Paul uh, maintains this thing of being like a uh, <laughs> like portray himself as a lovely guy like where he's like don't worry, he's in good hands. I'll make sure. He knows that you call. There's a wee palm. Sorry. She comes over to visit and he's like, oh gee, I, 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 I wish I had known you were coming over. I, I would have scrubbed the place up. I love this while um, he's arriving with a bunch of leather-bound stereotypes <laughs> from like the club scene. He's like, I would have got the cleaners well, in. You're just about to... <laughs> they want a tea. And it's just like his animosity towards Mary is like so pronounced. Oh God. Yeah. It's like Mary, lovely to see you. <laughs> Through those gigantic teeth. <laughs> Is it worth sort of just talking a little bit about the character of Ray Foster? Oh, God. Who doesn't actually <laughs> exist at all. Which was a bit scene, of... Some, the first scene, anyway, I thought was very funny. With the And he's worked with Hendrix. So it was a bit of a surprise to Jimi Hendrix. I do love, was it the Dancer on the Moon? You produced that. I love how they go into depth to tie, like, Dark Ray side Foster. Of the moon. Dark side of the moon. Have you heard of music? <laughs> <laughs> Am I familiar with the concept? But, <laughs> That, but was, I, that was Roger Deakins flying his right. Please don't judge this side of the recording for their musical knowledge. But yeah, I, I love how they, how much effort they put into this fictional music executive who apparently Queen screwed over and escaped from. Um, as if to say, you know, in, in a year's time, nobody will know the name Queen, as if to imply the Queen have magically erased Ray Foster from existence. I, there was I a Ray was, Foster. I was... 
I already found that scene bad, and then I came out and found out that he's not even real, and then it just made it seem that much worse to me. Like, what? What is the point? I would. I'll ask tell of- you what the point was. It was, it was to build up to the joke where they have Wayne from Wayne's World saying no kids in their car are ever going to bop their heads to this. But that's, you know, awful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that is bad. You know, and they <laughs> zoom in on him doing it yeah, as well. But, as if to say, like, that's then, the moment where the audience who haven't recognised him to that point will recognise him. Because he goes full like fat bastard accent after that point. It's like, all we have to do is conceal the fact that it's Mike Myers up until that moment. Yeah, his Yorkshire is very Scotland. <laughs> it is a bit. But I mean, here, this is the thing. Myers apparently accepted the role before there was a script. Which, but like, why is it there? Like, it's, it's there <laughs> for that in-joke, as Andrew pointed out. Because like, this, this is part of the mythology of Bohemian Rhapsody. Where Bohemian Rhapsody, to a bunch of Americans, is apparently best known for that scene in Wayne's World. Where it's just based on Myers' own childhood. His brother would like pull them over and assign them roles in the car where they would sing along to this. And apparently you got punched in the face if you didn't sing your role or Sorry, something else. Sorry, was brother like a highway policeman? He would pull, <laughs> pull them over, over yeah. and say, right, this is how you're going to get out of this. You're going to sing <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody from start to finish. It's For my he's not a Manchester policeman. <laughs> <laughs> he said he wouldn't have been punching them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he would have had another punishment. <laughs> For them. Jesus. Um, um, they also had to hit the beat, though, where someone like didn't believe in Queen. Yeah. You know? But to do it so awfully oh no it was it was very bad (laughs) even as a five-year-old child i um like queen's bohemian rhapsody got true to me i don't understand this thing about like but uh, that like people won't be ready for it or that people weren't ready for it which is like the 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 shocking thing it's like why can't we release a song where roger wants to his car (laughs) sorry but it, it, like, I, I, the, the whole idea of like, it, there is like a universe where people don't like Bohemian Rhapsody or don't think it'll do well, and it is this universe that we live in. Yeah. Well, that, that's uh, what I mean. Uh, that's one crazy. of the things again, this is one of the things where it's it's not good, but I like it about the film is the bit where they play it for the first time on the radio and they show you all the reviews of the of the song of the album. Where it's like Led Zeppelin clone. Or my personal favourite one is the closing one. Where it zooms in on perfectly adequate. um, (laughs) Over the Bohemian Rhapsody montage. That's one of our proudest reviews. Yeah, I was very proud that we made that. Yeah, perfectly adequate. (laughs) Perfectly sufficient. Or amply sufficient. But yeah, I I kind of, I like that aspect of it. Because it plays with the mythology of Queen in a way. That's much more interesting than Ray Foster. Like... Nobody will know the name Queen. Yeah. I don't know why he sounds like you'll Darren's never work in this game. town again. Baby and Rhapsody. I'm telling you now, nobody's going to be bumping their heads. It's awful. It's so <laughs> stupid. But you're having such a good you're just, time. You're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're setting up the flimsiest pin to knock down. Yeah. And it's like, also like Aiden Gillen is here for some reason. <laughs> and somehow not being duplicitous. Uh, Aiden I Gillen's there like, someone's doing a bizarre accent. And I just feel very out of place. <laughs> it's like someone's doing a bizarre accident suddenly i was in this movie <laughs> like i just it I was summoned me yeah. Yeah. it just kind of turns around and it's like aiden gillen it's like what yeah <laughs> uh, i summoned him it's like yes uh, if, you, if you say i agree with the band which is you, pretty yeah. much what it's like when you greet him in real life if you use it yeah. if you use a strange accent in front of a mirror aiden gillen will appear but it's like 
Queen are not going to be the best-selling band of all time. <laughs> I'm telling you now, Freddie Mercury, you're not going to turn out to be gay. It's like, Galileo. Oh, so bad. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Garlic bread. <laughs> but yeah, Sorry. And I, it's, it is so ridiculously broad. And again, and the, the whole thing involving like the manager, um, I'm oh, sorry, the Miami Beach, who's like, um, you know, who's like, uh, well, I, the court of public opinion is a very different matter. Or the bit later on where Freddie's like, oh, Miami will manage us. He's like, well, I haven't agreed to that. And then Deacon starts playing and the one bites the dust. He's like, I'll do it. Or the bit where af- outside the office where he's like, they'll come bound. It just takes a little bit of time. What if I don't have time? The, another ridiculous bit is when he's like, it's okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just go on the Kenny Everett show. And his wife is like, how do you know Kenny Everett? <laughs> As in like, wait a second. I know you're gay, but do you know Kenny Everett because you're also gay? You or is that an unreasonable assumption? Are you having air? gay sex with Kenny Everett? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I enjoyed Miami out of like the entire cohort of like manager men. He was my favorite. Yeah. yeah. And Tom Holland is a very good actor yeah. as well. I have to admit, every time I see an announcement about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and I see Tom Holland is playing Spider-Man, you're like, I always in my head substitute middle-aged oh, Tom Holland I would love and tell that. me that would be that's the evolved great. form yeah tell- so, like sometimes just to sad- climb the mountain of conflict <laughs> the skyscraper of injustice defeating Thanos is difficult difficult lemon difficult come on tell me you don't have that image of sad sack Tom Hollander walking home in a spider suit with no mask on just looking <laughs> forlorn yeah, yeah that's it exactly I love uh, Malcolm Tucker like putting it into Tom Holland <laughs> <laughs> like but uh, in terms of oh also like while we're talking about like generic Britishisms in the film because again this feels like a movie geared towards American audiences I quite like Sorry, putting it into <laughs> <laughs> what, was that, what was I trying to say there getting the boot some, in some fan fiction there <laughs> yeah. please getting the boot in um, where you have that's just the way things are done this the, is the BBC. Uh, <laughs> it, on the gong, it will be four o'clock. And they're like making fun of the lines that somebody has written into that movie. <laughs> as well, in the movie. It's like, oh, they're so, they're so uh, like Cliché. cartoonishly, clichédly stuck up, aren't they? But yeah. it's, 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 if only somebody had written them to be clichédly, cartoonishly stuck up. But this is my problem, because it's the same with... With with the, with the Meyer stuff and with the Live Aid stuff, it's you're setting up the, these like successes as these kind of underdog thing where Queen are appearing on t- Queen are being given an appearance on top of the pops that exposes them to a wider o- audience and goes very well for them as some kind of <laughs> like the BBC, struggle. Like the BBC weren't trying to put Queen down by putting them on top of the pops. <laughs> They're like, uh, this uh, is yeah. our voice. They're trying to stifle our voice. And which, which band member is it that goes? I it's don't... Brian May and Roger Taylor. Isn't well, it? And Deacon is like, I don't mind. I don't it's mind. Perfect, perfect performance. performance. And then, so you're just like, well, so it was actually fine then. So it really doesn't need to be. <laughs> need to be this like manufactured <laughs> conflict. And they also like have a line earlier where I think probably Aidan Gillen is like, what's bigger than Top of the Pops? You know, so yeah. they, they've established that this is like, everyone's having a nice time. Uh, <laughs> I, I also love like, uh, I've got a tour of Japan lined up for you. And Freddie's like, oh, we'll want more. 
And you're like, okay, <laughs> what we, we get? Japan too. <laughs> <laughs> Mainland China, Singapore, Indonesia, um, throw them all in. Um, but yeah, it's it's there's something very very strange about how the movie portrays like the massive success the Queen has as somehow not enough for Queen. I can yeah. see that it's difficult. Yeah, to make the, Queen an underdog. The screenwriter of this, um, he has done... A He's a two-time Oscar nominee, but I think he also yeah. did The Imitation Game, but I'm not sure I'll double-check on that one. Also kind of like, um, I feel like I might be wrong, but that they overplayed... They 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 make kind of um, uh, Freddie Mercury's background seem very kind of uh, working class. Yes. Which, yeah, I don't, which, which I don't think it's where he went school. to a boarding school. Yeah, yeah, and I it's why it's there was a diplomat, wasn't he? It's why again, was like a, but that's where yeah. it's insulting again, uh, again, not on purpose. But you're they're they're showing this is a Parsi family, and because this is a film, a Parsi family in Britain has to be like poor, <laughs> probably, and it's like well, right. that's not necessarily oh, the case. Just for the structure of the movie, I think, where he's like, um, apologies, Anthony Carton did not write the Imitation Game. He wrote Darkest Hour, yeah, which is another go. sort of theme park history biography, and The Theory of Everything, which is yet another theme park history biography as well. And he's two time Oscar nominated for those. And I would not be surprised to see him get another one for this one even though I don't think any of them deserved it. I can't wait for him to write a good screenplay and not get a nomination. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be exciting. They're very Oscar-friendly. They are very, very yeah. Oscar-friendly. And I mean, I, I can see this doing quite well award season time. Absolutely. And it does all the like, mm, like we like had a look at some difficult topics and then decided not to deal with <laughs> yeah. them in any real way. But, but we, we acknowledge them, right? We all feel good about oh, yeah. that, right? <laughs> <laughs> when, when we say doing well, though, like getting lots of nominations, but not really winning anything, aside from maybe music, of course. Yeah. Would it even win? Because it yeah, doesn't have an original maybe song. costume. Although I do love the idea of Brian May's 20th Century Fox fanfare winning the Oscar for Best Original Song um, over Shallow. Um, but yeah, that's apparently Brian May who does the introductory fanfare for 20th Century Fox. It probably yeah. only took him a minute. Like. Yeah. I, I just, yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'll do it over Skype. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's okay. Deacon is counting the money um, that you sent me. So it'll all balance out. Um. Is it... Is it vaguely interesting that like the past couple of months and particularly like if we're using the IMDb 250 as a measure of like populism and popularity, that like some of the biggest movies of the past year have been sort of vaguely nostalgic kind of musicals in a sense, in that I'm thinking of like Mamma Mia 2, Here We Go Again. Well, La La Land was big at the Oscars, but not so much. It was okay financially. Um, But I'm thinking of specifically of like A Star Is Born, which is going to like be a massive Oscar thing this year. Greatest showman. Greatest Showman, yeah, was a massive success this year as well, like in terms of finance and stuff like that, in terms of box office. So like these are monsters, the biggest like monsters of the year outside of the conventional blockbuster fair. Yeah, are like movies like Bohemian Rhapsody, A Star is Born, Greatest Showman, which I think we talked on the podcast. The Greatest Showman was a movie everybody thought was, again, dead on arrival, but was playing like 10th in the Irish top 10 30 weeks after it was released. See, I mean, the thing, like, we go to press screening. Yeah. And the atmosphere in a press screening where there's maybe 10 people in a small cinema screen at 10 o'clock in the morning is not the same as a packed cinema screen of people on a Friday evening. Yeah. Going to see a film about their favorite band or, uh, you know, like a a musical in general. Um, I think, you see, like, audience attendances are 
generally going down or at least within the industry they're perceived as what can we do to kind of keep them going up and stuff and with people more inclined than ever to stay at home to watch films it's not a surprise to me that the ones that are doing really really well are the ones that are engaging in that way where it's you can sing along and bop along and head bang in in your chair those are the things that are going to get you to go out to the cinema Yeah, and even the experience just like, you can't replicate at home. Yeah, yeah, and the spe- and like I mean, like the spectacle of like we're just gonna recreate Live Aid so you yeah. can watch it on the big screen. Yeah, you know, I mean that is because it, it should be noted actually. Again, like I do, uh, I do another podcast where we talk about like the Irish top ten and the box office and stuff like that. And one of the things that you've noticed in recent years is that like those live performances that you see advertised when you go to small regional cinemas and I include like Dundrum in that I include the local cinema at Swords you know those sort of like opera performances or the Met that are broadcast in occasionally or Andre Rue for example performing live at Christmas those performances occasionally do well enough to break the weekly top tens which is a remarkable amount of success for something that only has one screening like if you think about that in terms of like layout it's fascinating and it's kind of interesting that like do you have another podcast? How, <laughs> how could you do this that, to me? It, it might be good. It will get us away from the arguments about who wrote what joke. And uh, Darren, I'm very happy for you. <laughs> but, we're not a family, Andrew. You have a family. Um, but yeah, um, so... I just, nothing comes to mind. <laughs> for the life of me. For the life of me. Nothing comes to mind. I studied electrical engineering. Uh, I love that Deacon thought that would be a comeback. It's like, well, this will put him in his place. <laughs> he didn't think it was a comeback. He was being honest. That was That's what he does. Oh. I'm going to brook no criticism of John Deacon. So I'm sorry. Yeah. He's the best. But Deacon I, is so like, good. Yeah, yeah, like... Well, if 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 you want to make fun of me, then like How electrical engineering is the thing that I did. The, the Try making they, fun of that. The bits yeah. where they list what they did in in university in that again. Uh, just... It did. It did make me. That did make me think of Walker. That made me think of Black Dynamite. You know, they do the flashbacks in Black Dynamite. Uh, if you've seen it, to and it's like I'm 15 year old Black Dynamite, and you're my 13 year old uh, brother. It's like just pointing out that Brian May has this like astro. But yeah, well, I mean, like again, this is one of those things like, where you know, okay, we know. This is one of those things where you're you're wondering like how much involvement Queen had, where it's like the bit where he goes, "Oh, you study astrophysics. I guess that makes you the smart one." And producer Brian May nods and goes. <laughs> I guess that's right. And Roger, <laughs> you look like you have sex a lot. <laughs> and producer Roger Taylor nods yeah. and goes, I can tell you their names if you like. You're a dentist, so you're probably a pervert. <laughs> I, I see disgraced dentist. Is there, is there a, not a line, I might be misquoting, but where he's like, he's like, Ray Marker is just like, and you're a dentist. And Roger Taylor is just like, I never would have been a dentist. And it was like, do, do we care about this argument? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hilarious because I was actually having a conversation with a dentist like um, recently about their portrayal in media and how there's no like there are two modes for fictional dentists and he's not sure which one of them's worse. One mode is like the marathon man slash torture slash like murderous slash Corbin Burnson as the dentist Steve type, Martin, yeah, yeah, sort of thing. 
And the other one is just, they're incredibly boring. They're doctors who aren't interesting. And I love that, like, I love that Bohemian Rhapsody just takes the idea of dentistry being boring and doesn't provide any context for it. It's not like it's a job that will provide security and an important social function, but it's also really boring. And therefore, we can keep joking about how awful it would be for you to be a dentist. Because he's like, nobody will read Brian May's, like, thesis, but it'll be great, but you'll just be a dentist. How is that a put-down as well? It's like, if it wasn't wasn't for Queen, you'd be solving, like, the most fundamental, like, questions of the universe. And no one would read it because... It would be too groundbreaking that for whole, him to understand. The whole scene was utterly bananas. <laughs> like, especially because it was like, well, Freddie, you studied... Like, I don't know why you're like, you studied a thing. It's like, you studied design. <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> the, the film has already established that even though Freddie uh, went to a really good school, he was such a wild child and free spirit. Like, his dad, when they all have the... Uh, when they all have tea together, the whole band and that, he's like, I sent you off to a nice school. But like Freddy's too much of a wild child to have so. been tamed by it. So it's a, he's like the film has absolved that <laughs> in its own mind. Yeah, but I mean, it, it is kind of interesting though that like this is the template for films that are massively successful, and it's interesting that it is that performance that you can't replicate at home, whether it's singing along with something or whether it's like, and is it an element, a sense that it's like replicating that experience of going and watching theater or opera in there as well? Where it's like, it's because it, it, it is a lot of the film and a lot of what the film works really well at doing. And if you listen to the soundtrack, they have like movie mixes of the songs. A lot of the songs are not just performed, but they're performed in front of crowds with crowd responses and stuff like that, as if to simulate a concert film, which is an interesting approach to the material. Like it arguably it, works it better. Music as a, is done very well. Yeah. yeah. And like I think it's just like the star of this film is Queen's music. I mean, this is just like what came through so clearly was like it doesn't really matter to what's me. up on this to me, what is up on this screen as long as you're banging out Queen's hits, you know? I'm having a good time. And so sometimes the music worked very well within the because the the um with with within the storytelling kind of um um uh, format of the movie um for example kind of um a, upon upon his diagnosis i know it's kind of like almost the obvious choice and and a little bit kind of like cheesy along with a lot of this but but the like hauntingly uh beautiful uh who who wants to live forever like i will cry anyway when that song is playing regardless of 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 whether it's it's being played to the scene where where Freddie gets his his, his diagnosis. Uh, diagnosis, or it's a scene of um, Freddie clipping his mustache. It would that, still be, yeah. Well, that's and, what and the song's like, about, you know. Like, like it's uh, a. I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to say that it's exploitative. I think it's just very effective. Like the the um, as in as in like it's 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 going to get you, and this is the big question there. Did it get you? No. It but didn't. It no. didn't. I suppose you don't really have much of a connection with... This Queen. is interesting, because I actually... I came closer to crying this week than I did at any other film I've seen this year, which was the documentary, wow. um, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And oh, they have I really a, want to see the... Where is it showing? Uh, it was... It showed last oh, weekend and earned a total of £8 um, at the at each cinema where it's green. So... In the UK. In the UK. Um, I may, there may be a way for you to see it, but we'll talk about that off air. 
Um, okay. <laughs> Sounds... <laughs> Were you crying because he did something wrong? <laughs> like, what have I done? Um, will you consider it? Are for, you a cop? Will you consider? Yeah, you have to tell me. Yeah, you have to tell me. Will you consider it for award season, Andrew? Uh, yes. Great. We, you will. There will be a screener I available a to you. Podcast. Yes, we, you with my friend Darren Moon. We're practically tastemakers. But yeah. I, I watched it, um, and I almost cried at the bit where they're talking about how. Mr. Rogers, not Mr. Steve Rogers, but Fred Rogers, could talk about his emotions. <laughs> he could talk about his emotions through a little, like, shabby, cheap puppet of a tiger. And he couldn't talk about them in person. And it sort of cuts to this song. Sometimes I wonder if I'm too tame. Sometimes I wonder if I'm a mistake. I'm not like any. Or even awake Sometimes I get to dreaming That I'm just a fake And you have this sequence And it's absolutely beautiful Where the female co-star comes in And she starts singing I think you are just fine as you are I really must tell you I do like the person that you are becoming and they're talking about how, like, this is standard children's stuff where, like, the idea is that she'll come in and sing and he'll stop singing. But what Rogers did that was interesting was the tiger doesn't stop singing I'm a Mistake, even as she's telling him that she loves him and that he matters. Because that voice inside him doesn't go away, even when everybody's telling him how he's not. I wonder if I'm you a are mistake. just fine as you are. I'm not like Almost gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have screeners for <laughs> Do They Know It's Murder? Like Marianne and I were like almost in tears. Yeah, just hearing the scene described. Just hearing Darren accurately describe something emotional. In a, in a very mechanical sort of fashion. Um, but okay, so what bits got you to cry? So Andrew's discussed obviously the bit with the diagnosis, but Marianne, you apparently like you talked about before you went to the smart zone how you were crying so much that you didn't notice Andrew crying. Okay, so, that's not like quite accurate. Also, okay, sorry, like, apologies, we, apologies. Like drink had been taken. Also, we were closer. Well, sometimes you need anesthesia for the human through. condition. We weren't uh, we weren't flutered, but no. like an alcohol had been consumed. Um, uh, I the mean, walk to the cinema did us good. <laughs> um, a long walk. It was uh, like a 10 minute walk that took 45 minutes. Um, well, I can't remember what my point was now. Oh, yes. So. When did you cry? Oh, just like, look, I can't think about Freddie Mercury without crying. I mean, I think he's like one of the. I mean, I can count on like one hand the number of like celebrities or like famous people who I've had like enough of an emotional connection to to actually get very upset about. Freddie Mercury obviously died before I was born, but just growing up with the music and like just, I mean, I find his story so affecting. He did die before I was born, didn't he? No. What, when did he die? 
What? Uh, it's 84? Impro- you, 91. You were born 91. in Live Aid happened in 85. Sorry, oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I Cut that, Baron. I, I, love the, I, I love the idea that like the film took so many liberties with history. Queen but, didn't actually perform at Live Aid. No. It's just the movie's been so successful Why that they managed to like, embed themselves. Anyway, he died before I was like forming permanent memories. Let, let's say that. Um, I'm so glad that one of my first permanent memories of a song was... Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. Like, the, other, the other one was, um, uh, what's that, Space Cowboy? <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait for this. Um, yeah, the, well, we're talking Sorry. about Rocket Man will be the next big movie along these yeah. lines. But anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the movie could have really done almost anything and I would have been like oh my god, Freddie Mercury is such a loss. Because um, he was. He was such a loss. Like, I think... Um, and I think, well, really, actually, I and mean, this is kind of comes back to what I said about the music being the star of the the movie. That's also because I mean it is an extremely problematic portrayal of Freddie Mercury. But when you hear him, is when you hear his lyrics and his songs that he wrote, were which were very openly about like what he was going through. Although to be fair, the film even obscures that where you have the shot of Foster asking what the song's about. He's like, oh, it's just in the ear of the beholder daughter. Yeah, and but, the film almost wants to absolve itself of like anything resembling But, but when you get to stuff like, oh, the show must go on and who wants yeah. to live forever, like, you know, good night. I'm just so upset all the time. I think it's, yeah. And like, I mean, this is like why in a way it's kind of difficult to mock that up. But I also thought the scene of him like going in to get his diagnosis, possibly because there was no dialogue, like was like one of the most effective scenes in the in the film. In the film, yeah, um, yeah. If they just reduced the amount of dialogue, dialogue in the movie, <laughs> um, just because it was, and just like the whole history of that time, I find really affecting yeah. as well. But this is what I mean. It's like I would. I mean, I this is like a slight tangent, but. Um, I think it's Thor Ragnarok. They use the immigrant song twice. Yes. And I think I, I possibly tweeted this, but I was like, you could play the immigrant song over a documentary about aubergines and I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's just, it's just, there are certain songs that are just going to elevate whatever is happening on the screen. Well, there, yeah. you there, know? there are two films that are raised significantly just because they have Queen soundtracks. Um, like Highlander and Flash, Flash Gordon are very, very, very entertaining movies. But if they didn't have Queen soundtracks, that would cost them significantly. Yeah, yeah. I would argue that those two films, kind of aesthetically, lyrically, sexually, are kind of stronger uh, explorations of <laughs> Queen <laughs> than, than this film is. But that's that's personal. Adding Queen. Mu- music to a movie it kind of has this sort of transformative power it's it's a kind of magic hi um, <laughs> I, I thought you'd enjoy that <laughs> I really appreciate it see that um, wasn't in the movie it's a banger that's the first track on volume 2 of the greatest hits mm. um, is there anything else you want to talk about with regards to the film before we sort of wrap up actually Luke did you cry <laughs> okay he's is crying it, right now <laughs> is there anything that anything we haven't discussed already that people want to talk about that we haven't sort of delved into with with the movie anything that you found interesting or worthy of discussion 
All right. Um, <laughs> with that in mind, then we will wrap sure up. Sure, there is. We'll be kicking ourselves yeah. after. That's normally how it works. It is indeed. But uh, just before we go, what we normally do is we ask uh, people to recommend something in the world that gives you joy for our listeners. So, if our listeners, if I you could plug something, or if you want to plug something own. as well yeah. of your own, like so basically, if you want to draw readers or listeners' attention towards something of interest. Please feel free to do so. It can be anything. It can be something you've done. It can be a film, piece of television. This will be going out relatively close to recording as well. So it's something in the cinema. So please feel free. But uh, does uh, Andrew, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. I, I want to plug our fans. Yeah. Um, we we um, um, really appreciate the reviews um, that we have on like... Um, iTunes. On and iTunes. Yeah. You... Um, no reviews yet on Stitcher. I think... It, it, um, so get on that. We're really thankful for your work, guys. But don't slack. Um, yeah, no comments on SoundCloud yet. Um, we have but, had a couple of comments on SoundCloud. Oh, actually. I haven't seen those. Um, I, I was, I one of them like, mocked me for like talking about when, I, when we watched Infinity War and I was talking about how viscerally I wanted to feel the loss of like children and loved ones. How much I wanted the film to have a shot of like a mother watching her own child evaporate in her hands or something like that in order to underscore the scale of the tragedy of what was happening. And somebody was like, ha ha ha, the ease with which Darren talks about how much he wants to see kids die is amusing to me. And I thought that was a fair criticism. Yeah. So, so more of those. Um, <laughs> and, and our... Um... Yeah, I, 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 I was um, really happy we we're on the uh, Stitcher chart. We did. We made chart. chart. Not chart. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever your opinion of the podcast might be. Um, yeah, no, we, we made these. We're in the top, top 10, movers. which is of the top movers, which as Andrew pointed out, of the three charts on Stitcher, that's the one that doesn't have the Joe Rogan show on it. Yeah, yeah. So like if, if you're already subscribed to Top Shared and uh, uh, like Top top um, uh, <laughs> real podcast, podcast yeah. uh, you 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 can see lesser known uh movies in the top movers section and that's where we were so thank we you just, thank yeah. you everyone the week before last for not listening to our podcast so <laughs> so that we could get into the top movers <laughs> the section the week, week after when like literally dozens of you listened yeah if people can arrange to <laughs> alternate, uh, weeks. alternate weeks exactly yeah um but yeah no thank you no it, it really is and it's it's great that people are actually listening to us it still sounds strange to me if we're being entirely honest and but thank you it's thank insane you and the, the the way people like our accents yeah our very distinctive sligo accents who, like this might I don't know like like would are, are we, our iTunes reviews are very specific about our on accents. our on our final episode we might reveal the, the hidden <laughs> secret behind our accents they're both Mike Myers everybody. <laughs> yeah. All four of us are Mike Myers. Um, We're most impressed with his Marianne impression. But Marianne, if you could point (laughs) listeners towards something. Um, I guess in honour of Freddie Mercury's uh, love of cats, uh, I recently rewatched Keddy. Uh, Is this a documentary? The documentary about cats in in Istanbul. Istanbul. I mean, if you like cats, you just lose your mind because it's just nothing bad happens. It's just about all these like <laughs> lovely people like taking care of these adorable cats with like rambunctious personalities. It's great. And like a lovely thing to watch if you're sad. Aww. The film is very sweet. I love it. <laughs> and Luke? Uh, I would just I, go listen to Queen because I saw this film once to not enjoy it and then once for research purposes where I also didn't really enjoy it. But both times on the way home, 
I had Queen on Spotify on the bus the yeah. whole way. And that was great. <laughs> well, that's it. That's an argument that the film is basically, it works very well as a greatest hits package of Queen songs, even though, as Marianne pointed out, it doesn't have nearly enough of them. Watch Flash Gordon. <laughs> Flash Gordon that's is a, great. That's a great movie. <laughs> Yeah, um, and uh, if I... <laughs> where, where is that on the top 250? I know you two curate that list. Yeah. Individually, yes. Um, yeah, um, we've, been, we've been neglecting our duties late, lately. I'm going to uh, add a review We don't vote ourselves, but we take the votes that we want. And, and throw away the throw ones away that, the we, ones that, we, that don't. we don't want. All, yeah. all the reviews that say, where's Flash Gordon? Those are all me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, under those aliases um luke dunn zero one luke dunn zero two luke dunn zero three um but yeah and um i would recommend um widows is in cinemas this week and it's very worth seeking out actually if you're looking for a film in cinemas that's i would argue maybe a bit better than this and we probably won't be talking about it on the podcast uh but it's it's fantastic it's opening in the states this weekend and is very very worth a look it's one of my favorite films of the year so far uh, and it's very well put together but if people want a bit more Andrew a bit more Marianne a bit more Luke in their lives where can they find you guys um, I'm on I'm on Twitter I just repost the stuff that you'll see if you follow the podcast I would say A-Q-U-I-N sometimes I do <laughs> A-Q-U-I-N sometimes I do A-Q-U-I-N N-I-U-Q-A so that's Hey, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Say it like you wrote it, darling. <laughs> so, Marianne, follow that. Okay. Luke, follow that. Uh, I am on Twitter at Mr. Cynical. That's cynical with an I as in cinema. And you can also read me on filmandoven.ie. Perfect. And Marianne. You can find me on Twitter at tinyork. That's T-I-N-Y-O-R-C. Like a very small orc. And I mainly make jokes about being a goblin. It's great. <laughs> you can follow me at Darren Arnscrum. You can follow the podcast at, at the 250. Uh, we're coming into our sort of Christmas season at the moment. So next week, uh, Marianne will be joining us again with Grace Duffy to discuss uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, and then the week after, we'll be discussing City of God with the wonderful Anya O'Connor as well. So that's coming up on the next couple of weeks on the 250. Um, until then, if you like us, please feel free to share the, the podcast on your social media of choice. Uh, leave a good review. They really, really help. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much, guys. Make us feel good. They, they really do. Who's um, going to abandon this thing? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we Andrew, found it's good for our ego. <laughs> Andrew was beginning to launch a solo career. CBS Records <laughs> made an offer for you. His really accessible Twitter account. Andrew, <laughs> I think... You could podcast on your own. <laughs> Get out, you treacherous piss flap. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.